Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Dan for Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers, here to share the easiest way to buy tires. Come to Dobbs. With the best tire brands and the biggest inventory, you'll get your tires the same day at the lowest price, guaranteed. Next time you need tires, get into Dobbs. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast, powered by I Promise. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Down the left wing, Perron. The near wing, Hoffman shoots, he scores! They put it to the side of the net. Spin move, put it on goal by Sunquist, and the rebound right there for Hoffman. I know the coaching staff didn't like it, and uh, they were looking for a response. And uh, it's nice when you give them one. They, they're a resilient team over there. They worked hard. They, they came back in the game, played a good second, and uh, we found a way to win. That's what matters Ron at the slap end. Slap pass to Hoffman. Rebound, they score! Braden Shed ties the game. Blue line, he gets it somehow to David Perron. is the game with a goal and two assists. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kiley, we are live at the new E&B Granite Studio at the Centene Community Ice Center. Man, that was a big one. That one felt like it had a little bit more weight on it than your typical run-of-the-mill 17th game of the regular season should. Coming out of six straight games against Arizona, potentially having a loss in that first game of the series against I mean, the worst team in the division, it looked bleak with about three minutes to go in that game. And then you get the goal to put you in the tie. You go to overtime. You're able to get the game winner from David Perron. Hell of a victory for the Blues last night. And Alex, they really needed that one, man. Yeah, they did. And first of all, can I just say, I don't understand how people don't like three-on-three overtime in hockey. Like, that was so exciting last night with this Blues team on top of the fact that they just completely obliterated San Jose in overtime. I mean, they had 10 shots on goal, BK, and that was four minutes into that period. Just impressive in itself. But on top of that, the bigger picture in this one, that game was going one direction. That game was going the direction of another disappointment and another game that the power play let them down because they score on the first power play goal, Five on five, they really couldn't solve Martin Jones, which was frustrating in itself because there were so many opportunities with rebounds off of this guy, but the Blues weren't capitalizing on it. They were getting shots, but they weren't capitalizing. Then they had those two extra power plays where finally it felt like the officials were calling in their direction rather than against the Blues, but they didn't make them pay. And so you're sitting there watching that going, boy, this is a game that you are going to regret losing points on. And then they pull the goalie, they use the six on five, and as David 
Perron said in that uh, in that open there, BK, you had to respond. The coaching staff knew that the second period wasn't what the Blues were hoping for. It wasn't pretty. They went out there and they responded in the third period. You take that second period away from the Blues and Sharks game, that was complete domination from St. Louis, in my opinion. And frankly, that's what you want to see from this team. I think it was a little bit of a learning curve when you get a different team after seeing the same one for seven games. That felt like what that was. It was kind of, okay, we got a different team. This isn't Connor Garland going out there and skating around us. How do we approach this team? This is Martin Jones. This isn't Darcy Kemper. What do we need to do here? Blues simplified it in the third period and in overtime, and they came away with two points. I didn't. I don't know if I felt that way necessarily just because they played so well in the first period. Like, the Blues came out, and they had a really nice game play, and immediately the second period, it felt like the Sharks adjusted, and then they, they were the ones that definitely won that period. In the end, though, it, this is all about the third period and overtime for the Blues. That's what we're going to remember. And it's the same re reason we remember, in particular, one game against the Coyotes. The game that stands out in my mind was the one where Keller had that goal with .7 left on the clock to send the game to overtime. That was a game the Blues should have won. They should have gotten two points out of that one. And they ended up losing it in the shootout. This, was, this had some similarities to that in that it felt like and they're going to lose this game despite being pretty clearly for much of the game the better team. And so you, you went into the final few minutes and you're like, man, are, are they really going to end up getting nothing out of this? So you finally get the tie. You end up going to overtime. It's like, all right, at least you got the point out of this one. And then for them to be able to come out of that thing with two points, that, that was almost the opposite feeling that I had against that Arizona Coyotes team in the game that they lost in the shootout. Yeah, and look, when they scored that goal with 20 seconds left to go in regulation, I had no doubt that that Blues team was coming away with that extra point in overtime because you could tell the momentum was back on their side. And that was a game, in my opinion, you had to win. If you lose that game to kick off this homestand against the Sharks, you're looking at this open of 10 straight games against California teams a little bit differently. This one, being able to pull out those two points, in my opinion, gave the Blues that confidence of, hey, we're as good of a team as we thought we were. We're building something right now, and we can win games that's not against teams called Arizona. Yeah. Arizona has their name, but the Blues went out there, and they got two points. Look, was it pretty? No, without question. I had somebody tweet me after the game during postgame last night saying, well, the Blues were outplayed in half of the game. And I said, okay. The San Jose Sharks, you expect another team to outplay you at points. It's a matter of battling adversity and getting through that. And that's the part that stuck out to me. The first period was awesome. They didn't capitalize when they needed to because they got that goal. But at 5-on-5, five five, remember, BK, Mackenzie McEachern had a breakaway, and he didn't score there. Second period, Ivan Barbashev had a point-blank shot on Martin Jones, didn't score. San Jose went the other direction. They scored to take the 2-1 lead. That right there is when heads dip. But the Blues went into the intermission. They came out in the third period, and they continued to push. They continued to pressure. They outshot him in the third period, 15-9. to And that was with a couple of power plays. But you're out shooting your opponent. You're out competing. They battled through the struggles in the second period, and they came away with two points. Yeah, Joey Vitale was on with the morning show earlier today, and I thought he made a really good point, and it goes back to what you just said. This is a significant piece of the schedule for the St. Louis Blues. Let's take a listen to what Joey had to say. The final 30 games, 13 of those 30 are against Vegas or Colorado. So those can be some heavy, heavy, deep matchups come the very final couple weeks of the season. If you're a St. Louis Blues player, 
if you're this coach, you want to enter those 30 games, those final 30, with a, about a 7, 8, 9-point cushion to some degree. If you could be top of the division. So to me, when do you make that happen? You have to make that right now. It is a time the Blues really can take advantage. Start collecting those points like, like the old fat squirrel is going to do right around the fall time. Collect all those nuts and put them on his tree. That way he can stay nice and healthy through the winter. The Blues are in a span of 10 games right now against San Jose, L.A., and Anaheim. These are the games that they need to win. Now, there's a little bit. This is a two-sided coin here. Yes, they need to win these games. The problem is they're trying to win these games while they are. Hopefully, this is the peak in terms of the injuries. Yeah. I don't know that you could see a team a whole lot more injured in terms of the significance of the injuries to the big-time players. Tarasenko, Bozak, Thomas, Schwartz, Barbashev now, Pareko. These are some of your best players that aren't contributing on the ice right now. So it's going to come up to guys like Ryan O'Reilly and Braden Shin and David Perron, who was fantastic last night. Hoffman, who's really come around. Yeah. We'll get into that as we go along today. Your other guys that are the big-time point producers that are currently on the ice, they have to raise their game even another level. And then these other guys that are filling in have to fill in admirably. We saw that last night, but that's got to continue over these next nine games. So that way, as Joey said, they can get a little bit of a cushion between them and the other best teams in the in this division. Yeah, because look, you got three games in hand on Vegas right now, and you're a point of he- ahead of them. You have four games in hand on Colorado, and you're five points ahead of the Avalanche. And then, of course, you got the Arizona Coyotes, who are a game uh, behind you, but also have five points behind you in the standings. All of that shows you that they can make up that ground. But the key is what Joey said. You got Vegas and Colorado that are going to keep continuing to win hockey games. So when you're taking on the San Jose Sharks, who have 14 points on the season, when you're taking on the Anaheim Ducks and the L.A. Kings, who are only a point ahead of the bottom team in the NHL, you have to rack up those points. Because if you don't, if you play 500 hockey there, then you have to play 75% or 750 hockey for the rest of the season against some of these difficult teams. And remember, BK, Blues haven't even seen the Minnesota Wild yet. Now, I know they're down in the standings, but they've also dealt with COVID. They have a good team. This won't be easy. Like, you don't go into these 10 games and say, oh, well, the Blues should rack up a total of 20 points in these 10 games. That's not going to how this is going to be. Probably need to get close to 15. Need to get somewhere close to between 14 and 16 points, in my opinion, if you want to... If you don't, then that makes the the series against Vegas and Colorado for the rest of the season that much more crucial to the Blues making the playoffs. It's like if the Cardinals went into the year and they didn't take advantage of the games that they play against the Pirates, the Tigers, and the Royals. Mm-hmm. Like the, those are games you just you need to take advantage of them because right. that's where you rack up the wins to be able to up your win total and then hopefully end up if even if you don't win the division, getting into the playoffs in the wild card. That's where the Blues are at right now. These are their version of the Twins and the Pirates. They've got to take advantage, and they did last night. Hopefully, they continue to do so. You'll hear Blues versus Sharks game number two in this series. We're back to this, the two-game series, the second game in that series. They need to be able to take advantage of this. They have the team to do it. They do have some injuries that they're dealing with right now, though, so let's get into that. Last night, Ivan Barbashev, it looked like it was a foot issue. Craig Berube after the game said that he's going to get that thing looked at today, get it reevaluated. That's never what you want to hear. You hope that you're after the game. Hey, you know, he, he got a little nicked up. He'll be back tomorrow. He'll be fine. That's not what he said about Ivan Barbashev. 
How big of a loss would this be if he's out for any extended period of time? Yeah, I'm interested with this one, too. Joey said it on the post game with us last night. You know, sometimes that can go two different directions. If that was just one of those muffin shots that Joe likes to call where it just kind of nicks you up, it bruises, and you're going to let it sit for a couple of days, you might luck out. But if it is a, bro- a bone that was damaged, that's where things become crucial. You never want to say it's going to hurt the Blues to lose a player because they've lost a lot of guys already this season, and look at what they've done. They continue to win games. Depth is crucial for this team. But if you lose an Ivan Barbashev, you lose a guy who not only performs the way that Craig Berube wants him to perform and being that puck hound on a line, you put the onus on other players that they have to step up and play that amount of time. You're losing a guy who can play penalty kill. You're losing a guy who can play five on five. You're losing a guy that makes his lines better when he's out there. How many other guys do you have on this roster right now that can do that? Now, Zach Sanford and Mackenzie McEachern played the penalty kill the other night, which was impressive because that helps this Blues team. But can one of those guys step up and create offense like Ivan Barbashev? That's remained to be seen. So I'm not sitting here saying that if you lose Barbashev, it's going to be detrimental to your season. But I also think if you lose Ivan Barbashev, it puts the onus on other guys to step up. And if that's true, that's a lot of trust in guys that haven't shown you something up to this point yet. I think it all depends also on where Jaden Schwartz is right now. I mean, if Jaden Schwartz is coming back relatively soon, okay, you, you can make it through this Ivan Barbashev injury. If he's going to be out a while, and we don't seem to really know for sure what when or if he's going to be back, right. if he's going to be out a while, you're starting to get really deep into your depth. So you said you don't know that it's going to be. You don't want to say it's going to be detrimental to the team. It will be detrimental to the team. Now they might be able to overcome that, but you start looking at the bottom six. You're already into guys that weren't expected to have significant roles that are playing every night and meaningful minutes for you. You're starting to look at a third line where. I mean, it's going to be Sonny, Blay, and McEachern on your third line. As much as you say that and you wince at it, you also have to take into consideration those guys and how they've played these last couple of games. Now, you're yeah, not- but you don't want them playing significant minutes on your third line. You're starting to overextend a little bit for some of these guys. But what's significant minutes? If we're talking 18 minutes, then yeah, you don't want that. But I don't know if those guys need to play those minutes. Those guys need to play times that allows the Blues top players to rest. And here's an example. Joey talked about on the broadcast last night. The fact that you can have Zach Sanford and Mackenzie McEachern play significant time on the penalty kill and work means you take Ryan O'Reilly off of the penalty kill, which gives him more time at five on five. The fourth line has played really well for this team. Now, do I want them in crucial situations when you're down by a goal? Of course not. But now you've just weakened that fourth line because now you've taken McEachern, who has been a significant piece of what they're doing on the fourth line, and now you're potentially moving him up. And Sanford, maybe, now is on your top line. Like, you're starting to get to the point. And uh, all of this is hinging upon when Jaden Schwartz is going to return. If he if he's back soon, you can make it through all of this and null right. and void all of this conversation. But if he's out for a while... Sanford now moves up to the top six. McEachern is now on your third line. Now, who is the next guy on the fourth line? Paganski? Got an Austin Paganski. I mean, it, you're getting to the point where you're kind of overextending these guys, in my opinion. It's true. You are. But this is the depth that we've talked a lot about with this Blues team, that they can put guys in and they can still be significant and create opportunities for offense. And that's what it comes down to. It comes down to guys playing their role. If Zach Sanford's on that top line, well, guess what? You still have O'Reilly and Perron to create offense. If Austin Pagansky's playing on that fourth line, 
Well, he's going to have to match the compete level of a Kyle Clifford and a Jacob De La Rose. But Kyle Clifford has been significant for the Blues so far. So those players, it's a big shot and a big loss. But I want to see what these other guys can do. And I think they can perform that way because Craig Berube's system isn't reliant upon certain guys in the lineup. It's reliant upon a system. And when the system is played correctly, they can overcome whatever injury comes up into play. And I think the Blues can do that without names like Barbashev and Schwartz. Maybe, but it, when you got Barbashev and Schwartz and Thomas and Bozak and Tarasenko and Pareko, like, eventually you just get to the point where it's like, man, we have a, whatever, $80 million salary cap and $40 million of it right now is on, an, in, on our injured list. Yep. So it, they can overcome some of these things. They did last night and they deserve full props, full credit for that. They've overcome it for much of this season. And again, full props, full credit for doing so. There's a certain point in time where it gets a little dicey, and especially for this to be happening in the middle of a really significant piece of the schedule, it makes me nervous. I I hope that they're able to make it through this. I hope Barbashev's injury is nothing. He's going to be all right. I hope Schwartz comes back right away. It just, you start looking at some of these injuries, and while they have not taken their toll on the win-loss column yet, I have a fear that it potentially could get there if these continue to pile up because of it, it's it's really hard to lose all of these guys. I know they say next man up. Well, the next guy up isn't Jaden Schwartz. The next yeah. guy up isn't Ivan Barbashev. He might be 80% of those guys, but there's a reason why these guys are such significant pieces for the Blues. It's 11-15. Your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. Got a good show for you guys today. Matt Larkin coming up at 11-30. He wrote about the Blues' potential trade interest in Vince Dunn. We'll talk to him if that's changed over the last couple of weeks. Matt Larkin at 11-30. Hunter Pence will join the show coming up at 12 o'clock. Coming up next... Alex Ferrario has a new idea for what the Blues could do for reset for what the Cardinals could do with their number two hole hitter. He'll tell you who it is and why it might surprise you coming up next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Um, you know, I respect Goldie and, and, and Nolan to anchor more the middle of the lineup. Um, you know, traditionally that's more 3-4. That's where they've used to been, have, have hit. Um, does that mean that's where they'll hit? Can they hit 2-3? and three? Yeah, they absolutely can. Um, we'll take a look at all that. It's one of the reasons we're going to, we're down here in this, uh, not to rub it in, but beautiful weather down here in South Florida. That was Mike Schiltz on the show a couple of days ago. If you missed any of that conversation, 101ESPN.com is where you find it. I was reading MLB.com, Alex, and you heard Schilt there say basically, hey, you know, we could get creative with what we do in the two and three holes. Well, MLB.com put out their projected lineups for each major league club this season. I was reading through. I was like, okay, I wonder what they have for the Cardinals. Tommy Edmond at the top. That makes a lot of sense. That's kind of what we, we've been talking about. Paul Goldschmidt batting third, Nolan Gorman in the or Nolan or Arnado rather as your cleanup hitter, Dylan Carlson batting fifth, Yachty sixth, Tyler O'Neill seventh, Harrison Bader eighth. They had Paul DeYoung batting second in this lineup. That is not something we've talked about a single time in the entire span, basically since the end of last season, and certainly since this team has added Nolan Arenado to the mix. I saw that, and I was immediately like, yeah, no, that's ridiculous. This is just MLB.com being MLB.com. They don't know what they're talking about. Alex, yeah, 
those damn experts. <laughs> what do they know? Alex saw this and he's like, hey, that's actually pretty interesting. In fact, that makes me think maybe the Cardinals could get creative with their two-hole hitter. Alex, what came to mind as you saw the idea of, eh, Paul DeYoung, maybe he could be a number two-hole hitter I for thought, the Cardinals. you know what, Matt Carpenter could hit there. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. I just wanted to see you grimace. No, you know, I didn't goff at the fact of Paul DeYoung hitting second. And, in fact, I saw that and I said, kind of buys into what I've been thinking, Tyler O'Neill hitting in the two-hole. Whoa! I know. A little bit of craziness right now, but hear me out. The more I thought about high this. High strikeout, high power that's as right. batting second in Put the lineup. second okay. in the lineup. Here's where I'm thinking, and this can this can go with the Paul DeYoung theory as well. Your three, four hitters are Goldschmidt, Arenado, Arenado, Goldschmidt, however you want to look at that. From a pitcher's mindset, you're not, you can't pitch around those guys. Or if you'd like to pitch around those guys, you got to make sure that they can make you pay from the front or the back end of that batting order. Those guys are going to see a lot of off-speed pitches, in my opinion. They're going to see a lot of pitches on the outside of the zone. Pitchers are going to try and make sure that they're, they're reaching and trying to take shots at those. Which means in a two-hole position, wouldn't you think that those, those guys are going to start to see more fastballs, more sinkers, maybe some change-ups here and there? That's what I would imagine a pitcher is going to want to do, right? They're going to try and go right at those first couple of guys so that they don't have to do that with a Nolan Arenado, Paul Goldschmidt. So I went and looked at it with your help to see what some of those numbers were. Tyler O'Neill and Paul DeYoung hit the fastballs really well, really well. So Tyler O'Neill in his career with four-seam balls, he's a three thirty-eight hitter with a seven hundred slug percentage. Paul DeYoung against four seamers, 273 with a 626 slug percentage. Now, maybe this is too much of a theory because I guess pitchers don't have to throw fastballs to these guys, but in a two-hole spot, those guys are going to see a little bit more favorable pitches rather than what Arenado and Goldschmidt are going to see, so that's part of the reason why I'm thinking maybe they're not outlandish to think Paul DeYoung or Tyler O'Neill can hit in that two spot. It's an interesting theory, and 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line from the 314. Guys, this seems similar to me to hitting Chris Duncan second back in 2006. It's a really good comparison. Chris Duncan back in 2006 spent 54 games as a starter batting second in the lineup. In those 54 games, he hit 290 with a 595 slugging percentage that year. Now, he had the best protection you could possibly ask for coming up next after him. That's exactly what you'd, you'd have here, too, with Goldschmidt and Arenado coming up next. Yes, the, the, the Cardinals would have a ton of protection in the lineup. And to what you were just saying, you cannot pitch around at that point, Tyler O'Neill, because this is a guy that has a high strikeout rate and he does not have a great walk rate in his career. So you're going to pitch him down the middle and hope that you can strike him out. So that way you don't have runners on whenever Goldschmidt and Arenado come up to take your point a step further. If you were going to get creative like this, whether it be DeYoung or O'Neill, and I think it works for either of those two, that the idea is the same. You want to get them pitches to hit. So their production is at its peak performance. Right. Whenever you get them batting second, instead of in this scenario, batting Dylan Carlson fifth, I would have him as my leadoff guy. Really? So I would go Dylan Carlson at the top of the order, Paul DeYoung or uh, Tyler O'Neill batting second, and then you've got Goldschmidt and Arenado batting fourth, and then I would have Tommy Edmond batting fifth. 
So you have a little bit of speed behind Goldschmidt and Arenado, so that way you're not you're not worrying too much about uh, double play balls there like you would if you had uh, Yadier Molina coming up next. I think it could make a whole lot of sense, and it's honestly something that I had given zero consideration to. I don't know that the Cardinals will do it. I think that the most likely scenario here is you get Tommy Edmond batting first, you get Dylan Carlson second, so they get him pitches to hit, and then you have Goldie and Arenado 3-4. If for whatever reason Edmond does not, though, start out the season hot, he does not look like he's going to be the answer as your leadoff hitter, I think that's when they could maybe start getting a little bit more creative and going with something like what you've said here. I don't think you're crazy for this. Well, that's nice to hear because I thought I was crazy the more I thought about this one. But, you know, the other thing with Tyler O'Neill and maybe more him than Paul DeYoung, this guy can fly on the base pass. Yes. And, I mean, if you can get Tommy Edmond as a leadoff hitter, hit like he used to hit, where he's on base an awful lot. I mean, one, Tommy Edmond on the base paths, a single could turn into Tommy Edmond ending up on third base or ending up scoring a run. The same can be said for Tyler O'Neill. If you have two guys on the base paths that can get on at a nice clip and run the base paths as well as they do, I mean, BK, with, with Arenado and Goldschmidt, and then let's say Paul DeYoung is hitting in the five-hole spot, I mean, you're talking about potentially getting three or four runs in that first inning with those guys. Yeah, and I mean, that's probably not how it would work out most of the time. We all know that, right? But at the same time, you're giving yourself the potential for it. You want to have the biggest possible first inning. We've seen this a million different times. The starter comes out in the best time to get them is early. Mm -hmm. And so if you have your your biggest threats coming up in the first inning right off the bat, that that's where you're going to have the best opportunity to be able to get to them. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Guys from the six three six, why would you put a guy on or a guy batting second that never gets on base? Now you're having that guy in front of Goldie and Nolan Arenado. I think he's talking about Tyler O'Neill. So fair point. And last year, if you looked at what Tyler O'Neill did, he had a three or two sixty one on base percentage. If you look at the year prior, three eleven on base percentage. I'm less interested in that specific number and more interested in the walk rate which has gone up each of the last three years for Tyler O'Neill. He went from 5% walk rate to a 7% walk rate, and last year he was at 10%. The thing that's been the problem for him is his batting average. He just hasn't had enough contact. And I think what you would try to do here by having him batting second is you're giving him the ability to see more pitches that he can hit. Mm -hmm. He's going to see pitches that he can actually take advantage of in this scenario so now, instead of having a 173 batting average with a 10% walk rate, hopefully it's closer to a 260 batting average with an 8% walk rate. And now you've got a guy that looks really good batting second in your life. And oh, by the way, he's got unbelievable power. And when he's hitting, when he's making contact with the ball, you're getting a whole heck of a lot of doubles, a couple triples, and some homers mixed in there as well. Yeah. It, it could work. This, this scenario, if Tyler O'Neill's hitting, could actually work out really well. The only part that I took a step back when I thought about Tyler O'Neill there is I like the idea of Edmund Carlson because you have two switch hitters at the top of your order, right? Like you're, you're going to keep that pitcher guessing kind of of what's going to work in this position. Edmund and Carlson can both flip-flop if they need to because then you're going to get right-handed hitting heavy with Arenado, with Goldschmidt, with Tyler O'Neill. So I kind of like the idea of having two switch hitters, but... In this sense of having O'Neill or Paul DeYoung hit in that two-hole, 
you can move a switch hitter down and, again, have that pitcher kind of go second-guessing of what's going to yeah, happen. Yeah, and the other thing is I don't care who's pitching with Arenado and Goldschmidt coming no, up. No, You can have not. a lefty, you can have a righty. I don't care who you're going to throw out there. I want my best against your best. We'll figure it out. I think my best are going to beat your best. What you're doing at the top of the order there, though, I just I want to get my best hitters. So right now, to start things off, I want to see Edmund and then Carlson. Yeah. If that doesn't work out, though, that's when you could get creative. That's when you start expanding some things. That's when you start looking at something like a Paul DeYoung or Tyler O'Neill batting second. It's not crazy, Alex. I like hearing it's that. It's actually not a terrible idea. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up next, we're going to talk to Matt Larkin of the Hockey News. He wrote recently that the Blues should absolutely consider trading Vince Dunn. I wonder if he's changed his tune after what we've seen the last couple of weeks. Matt Larkin joining us next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kiley. We're live at the new E&B Granite Studios at the Centene Community Ice Center. Right now, let's go out to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line. Happy to be joined by Matt Larkin. He's a senior NHL writer for the Hockey News and also over at Sports Illustrated. You can follow him on Twitter at THN Matt Larkin. Matt, thanks so much for the time today, man. How you doing? I'm good. I don't know if I do justice to the term celebrity line, but I'll do my best, fellas. <laughs> All we can do is our best on a day-in, day-out basis, Matt. Uh, let's start with the piece that kind of got us interested in having you on the show. You, you kind of looked into some of the potential trade candidates out in the NHL, and one of those names, of course, that we've talked about here in St. Louis is Vince Dunn. And at the time, it seemed like Vince Dunn was a surefire, that dude's going to be traded by the deadline. Now I don't quite feel the same way. Where are you at on Vince Dunn now in terms of his trade status compared to when you wrote this piece? Well, I still don't know if long-term Dunn is going to be the perfect fit for the Blues because of the Tory Krug signing. If you look at the things that Dunn does from the left side and, you know, his role as a puck mover, as a power play quarterback, all the things he does best. If you look at the potential ceiling for a player like Dunn, it's kind of what Tory Krug already is. So I'm wondering if we're going to eventually see a trade, especially just because, you know, we've seen the pattern time and again of, of Dunn failing to earn Craig Brubay's trust. We saw earlier this season him being called out for his ability to defend one-on-one. I'm still a believer in Dunn. If you look at the analytical numbers, they're really strong, but they're also very sheltered. The sample size is small because he's played really sheltered minutes, often third pair at five-on-five and often against weaker competition. So we don't really fully know what Dunn's ceiling is. And I think there are plenty of teams out there that would want to know because we know he's talented, especially in the Stanley Cup year. He had 12 goals that year. He's got really good natural offensive abilities, but I just don't know if he can fully spread his wings in St. Louis. Matt, I'm curious from your perspective with Vince Dunn, what could a guy like this warrant in terms of a trade? And if you don't trade Vince Dunn, could it be beneficial for the Blues to keep a guy like this, one, to strengthen your depth when it comes to defense, and right now the Blues need depth when it comes to injuries, and possibly use him as a little security when it comes to this expansion draft? For sure. I think in terms of the trade value, you know, you could look at, is Vince Dunn worth, worth the first-round pick? Is it a second-round pick? I'm not sure. But the Blues, this is, this is a win-now team, right? So to me, if you're trading Vince Dunn, I see it more of a, hockey, a potential hockey trade, and I think the Blues, I still think that 
especially when you look at the, the career trajectory of Vladimir Tarasenko, you have to be worried about the shoulder long term. I, I think the Blues could use more good young forwards. It's really great to see what Jordan Kyra is doing this year. I don't know if it's going to happen for Clem Costin, another one of their good prospects. So I could see Dunn being traded for a player of, of equal value, maybe someone who needs a change of scenery as well, but has a lot of potential. Uh, but it's a good point about the expansion, the, the expansion draft. You know, you have to think going forward, who is going to be the candidate to be claimed? It depends on what the scheme, what scheme they use. Whether they're going to protect seven forwards, whether it's going to be, you know, eight skaters. But you have to think ahead as well. I think Dunn is someone who would be pretty appealing to get claimed if he's not protected. So based on that, do you have to consider moving him rather than lose him for nothing? I am curious as well. We're talking to Matt Larkin here on 101 ESPN. What do you think? What do you think the market would be like for him? I know you, you said compensation. We're not really sure. But h- how many teams do you think would have interest in a player like Vince Dunn, given his status with the signing? He'd be a restricted free agent again next offseason. So potentially would try to work out a long-term deal there. What do you think the market would be in terms of the, the teams that would be interested for Vince Dunn? I think at least half a dozen teams. I think the, the ideal fit to me for Vince Dunn is a team that is – starting to ascend, but is missing a few pieces, but it's still a relatively young team. So I read somewhere, I forget who reported it, um, but the LA Kings came up as a potential suitor. I think that's a fantastic fit. That's a team that has a really good young group of prospects coming up. But if you look at what they have in defense, most of the Kings' top prospects are forwards, whether it's Arthur Kaliev or Quentin Byfield, Alex Turcotte. Defensively, they have Tobias Bjornfa, but overall that group is not as exciting. You have Drew Doughty kind of nearing the end of his prime. I think the Kings kind of need a successor. I know Dunn doesn't play the right side, but overall just someone who can really drive the play from the back end. So I think that's the type of team, a team that's almost ready to start contending but not there yet. And you add a guy like Dunn who still has a lot of upside left, he can help get you to the next level. Man, another uh, list I wanted to get into with you was over on the Hockey News or Sports Illustrated, uh, and it was talking about the top 10 position players right now in the NHL. And it went position by position. Let's start with goaltender because the guys had Jordan Bennington on that list, and I couldn't agree more. I mean, we are seeing Jordan Bennington's status from 2019 on that cup run, if not better, for the way that this guy has been playing for this Blues team. And isn't that exciting? I was thinking that the other day, too, just if you're a Blues fan, how excited do you have to be? Because this is such a crucial year for Bennington. It's a contract year. And, you know, I made some comparisons in the offseason to Jim Carrey. And what I was saying was, you know, I'm not talking actor Jim Carrey. I'm talking <laughs> net detective Jim Carrey in the 90s. And we remember that story. He kind of came out of nowhere, late bloomer, won the Vezina Trophy, and then he fell off a cliff. And with Jordan Bennington, what I said coming into this season was, okay, we had the great first season, but it happened in the mid to late 20s. And then last year in the playoffs in particular, he didn't look as good. And you have to wonder, okay, which is the real version of him? Is he is he going to be a star for years to come, or is he going to be a flash in the pan? I, I was pretty confident it was the former, but the sample size was still pretty small. So seeing him do this right now, what he's doing this year, playing at a really high level, it's super encouraging for the franchise, especially because, you know, obviously he's been thrown into some tough situations, but Billy Huso hasn't looked at, I think, super competent or, you know, poised to be the guy to take the torch. So I think you need Bennington right now. And to me, he's looking the part of true alpha dog, number one starter who can be your anchor for years to come. And I do think it's a priority to resign him, especially if he keeps playing like this and he's going to be the man for a long time in the Blues crease. Matt, the last question that I have for you, what is your view right now of this Blues team as a whole? If we kind of go big picture, the Blues compared to specifically this West division, what's your view of this team so far this season? 
Well, I'd say overall rock solid. If you ask me going into the season, especially, I'd say, hey, yeah, they're in their window. You know, just a year, a season removed from winning the cup. Even if you lose Pietrangelo, I still think it's a really deep team. It's a well-coached team. It's a defensively strong team. It's a physical team. I like the Blues in general. This year, it's, it's kind of tough to evaluate because of all the injuries. And it's remarkable to be sitting in first place, in, at least in terms of points, with all the injuries that the Blues have to overcome. So I think overall you have to take that as a positive because you're going to get reinforcements eventually. It's going to be interesting to see what happens when Tarasenko comes back because, again, I don't know what this you know third shoulder surgery is going to mean for him long term. But overall, I think you have to be optimistic that if this team is doing as well as it is with all these injuries, then when you get to full strength, you should be a legitimate contender. And I do see that. I see the Blues that way. I think they're a top 10 team in the NHL, absolutely. All right. Matt, I, I do got a bone to pick with you on this list because we mentioned Jordan Bennington is on it. We mentioned um, Justin Falk is on this one. David Perron is on this one. But I don't see Jordan Cairo's name on this one. Why is that? Now, is this the, the top ten by position? This list, yes. I didn't write this list, so I, I, I can't officially you know claim to be behind every pick on this list because we you know each of us with hockey news we each we're allowed to make our own rankings and stuff like that. But if you're looking at players by position, I think, you know, the assumption for me would be that, that we have to see a little bit more from Jordan Cairo to be officially, you know, graduating to that veteran group of being considered one of the best in the league at his position. Uh, but I'm, I'm super encouraged. I think the potential for him was always there. He's a dynamic player. He's a fast player. If you look up coming, uh, coming up in Canada as a junior player and, you know, playing with the, the national team at the World Juniors, he showed a lot of potential. And it was, you know, you see players like this. It kind of reminds me of Jack, Jack Rosselvick after being traded to Columbus, where you see a young player with a lot of potential and you think, okay, has he just not earned the opportunity or has he just not received the opportunity? And I was kind of putting Cairo in that category, just you know, wondering, does he need just to be given the chance to break through or does he have to earn it? But what we've seen this year is kind of a bit of both. He's played really well, and I don't think anything he's doing is a fluke. He's a, he's a kid who has been a scorer at every level. Even at the AHL, I think he made it look relatively easy in terms of how quickly he was productive there. So I'm a believer in what he's doing. Okay, so I shouldn't have grouped you into that uh, group with your teammate there. That was my apology, Matt, because I I know you're smart. I know you're smart. <laughs> well, hey, I'm just saying, you know, we all we all get to spread our wings and then do our own thing. So I, I believe it was my buddy Sammy who made the rankings. That's and I, right. He's a smart guy. But, you know, I'm, I'm a big rankings guy, too, so I'm, I'm finicky. I'm anal like that, and I like to stick to my own rankings as well. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, we appreciate the time, man. All the best to you. We'll talk with you again soon, my friend. Hey, it's my pleasure. Absolutely. That is Matt Larkin joining us here on 101 ESPN. Where do you think right now, like I know the other day we, we heard from Chris Kerber and he mentioned that if you, you were having the conversation about the Norris trophy today, he thinks that Justin Falk should be involved in that conversation. Do you agree with that? G- given the numbers, given the production, given the way that he's played so far this year, uh, do you think Justin Falk should be involved in that? A hundred percent. I think he should be above uh, Kale McCarr, who right now is probably a lot of people's favorites. The, uh, Kale McCarr has been injured for the Colorado Avalanche. He's only played 11 games. That's no fault to him. But Justin Falk has played in every single game for the Blues. He's still in the lead in the National Hockey League in terms of plus-minus. He's put together uh, eight points. He's playing 24 minutes a night. He is doing everything that a Norris Trophy candidate does. The only problem is BK... He's not putting up the points that most gold our defensemen would put up. Now, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, they'll do the awards this season in each division because there's not a conference anymore and it's not the league in whole. Maybe it is just going to be the league. But 
Justin Falk can't compete with a guy named Quinn Hughes who's putting up like 25 points in a season. But for Justin Falk to be plus 16, the best defenseman in the National Hockey League in that aspect, playing over 24 minutes a night, yeah, he should be number two in terms of Norris Trophy candidates. They're... They're doing the awards by division this no, year? No, they're not. I've seen people. So basically what they're doing this season. I was about season, to say, that wouldn't make any sense because it's for the league. They're breaking them down in terms of the, the season. So they're saying, oh, what's the Norris Trophy per division right now? That's okay. where Kale McCarr's name has come up. But if sure. you would ask people, experts of what the Norris Trophy candidate is this season, it's Quinn Hughes' name because he's put up 20 points. That guy. But Vancouver, Vancouver is not in a postseason position right now. Whereas Justin Falk is helping his team plea for first place in the division while staying at plus 16. That's Alex Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. We are live from the new E&B Granite, E&B Granite studio at the Centene Community. I said I had a little bit of a stroke there. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. We'll get to your questions and answers coming up next. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. is the air comfort service text line for questions and answers we'll talk to hunter pence four-time all-star two-time world series champion former giants outfielder he's going to join us coming up in about 10 minutes or so from the three two one guys i recently moved to st louis i'm a new hockey fan and i was curious if i invest in an authentic jersey of a player what do you think about whether or not that player could potentially get traded is it still okay to wear that jersey or should I go with exclusively franchise players for the Blues? Well, if you were, let me ask this a little differently. If you were a fan right now and you were open to any Blues jersey, what would be the one that you would invest in? Do, do I want to have a jersey of a player who I know is going to be here? Well, that's open to interpretation. Okay. What, whatever, um, what do you, what would, jersey would you want to buy if you were in the market right now? If, and you had none. If it were me, it would be Jordan Bennington immediately because that's a that's a franchise goaltender, right? Like, he's not going anywhere. I don't care what people say. He's going to hit the market. He's going to get paid. He's not going to leave St. Louis. The Blues can't allow that to happen. But if it's not Jordan Bennington, uh, you know, I would invest in a Jordan Cairo jersey. I would invest in a Colton Pareko jersey and I think I would invest in a Braden Shen jersey because I know those guys are going to be cornerstone pieces of this team moving forward but you're also asking somebody who the moment Eric Johnson was selected with the first overall draft pick back in 2006 I thought ah first overall pick this guy ain't going anywhere perfect opportunity to buy myself my first blues jersey four years later he was gone and now I'm stuck with that jersey I would go with either O'Reilly or Shen one of those two would be my pick for this now O'Reilly while it may not seem risky right now, five years from now might feel a little riskier. I think Braden Shin's going to be here for the long haul. He's going to be a franchise player for the Blues. He's already signed long-term. So he is the safest jersey to buy right now, in my opinion, on this entire Blues roster. O'Reilly's a little more risky, but I could see that. If you're looking to get in on the, the early side of things, Jordan Cairo would be my guy. Look, you can't go wrong with Ryan O'Reilly. I mean, even if he's, after, if, even if he's gone after two years... The guy is still one of the, he was the MVP of the postseason in the Blues' first Stanley Cup championship. You can't go wrong with that jersey because he's always going to have a legacy here. That's a really good point. And 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line from the 314. Guys, I would go with Brett Hull. He's always going to be a blue. That's very true. That's a fair one as well. Also, go with the Winter Classic. That's the best Blues jersey. No, that you reverse could buy. retro. 
Oh, not Alex. the reverse retro. Buddy. Tanner, you Buddy. be quiet back there. Not the reverse retro. Fine. You go buy yourself an Arizona Coyotes reverse retro and wear a Grimace shirt. 65780 is the air comfort service tax line from the 217. Guys, do you think Harrison Bader will be able to hit 10 home runs and steal 25 bags in this upcoming season? Would you put an over-under on 10 home runs? I would probably put a over. I, I think it could be like an 11 for Harrison Bader, but I could see that. And 25 stolen bases. Look, if the guy's getting on base, he's stealing bases. I See, that's that's the one that I would have more of, an, more of a struggle to get to. 25 in 162 his, games? His career high is 15. He stole 15 bases in 2018. He had 11, he uh, 138. He had 11 in 2019 and then just three last year. Yeah, they haven't tough. been running on the base paths as much over the last couple of years. The first year under Mike Schilt, they did it a ton. And then it kind of waned from there. I would take the under on the stolen bases. I would say 15 homers, 15 stolen bases, very much in play. Going over 20 on either of those two statistical categories, I think is probably pushing it a little bit. Yeah. But 15 homers, 15 stolen bases is is possible for him. That's probably where I would go as my ceiling for that. Yeah, you're right. 25 is a lot. But yeah, I could see a 15 and 15 guy for the for the Cardinals, which would be huge if they could get that out of Harrison Bader. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers from the 314. Guys, do you think we should read in, into Justin Falk wearing the A last night with Colton Pareko out? No. No, I, I mean, look, one, if 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 Jaden Schwartz was healthy, Schwartz would have been wearing that A. Um, that is just a matter of kind of. Don't they like splitting it, though, between the defensemen and the forwards? So with Pareko out, I guess it makes some sense that Folk would, would yeah, step up. But right? I think they have this kind of like um, this, this pedestal of leaderships in that locker room. And I think it would go to a guy like Jaden Schwartz because he's been here long enough before a Justin Falk. Now, because of these injuries, it does say something that Justin Falk got a letter because they look at him as a leader in that locker room, and you should view him as a leader in the locker room. I mean, heck, he played 28 minutes of ice time last night for the Blues, so I wouldn't look at this as, oh, they're going to take the A away from Colton Pareko and put it on Justin Falk. Oh, no, 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 no. But I think moving forward, Justin Falk could be a leader. The problem is you got guys right now, Vladimir Tarasenko, when he's returning, he's going to be wearing the A. Colton Pareko, when he's back, wears the A. Braden Shen wears the A. So you can look into it, but I wouldn't look at it as Justin Falk is going to be a leader in the near future. I think this is just he's a part of that leadership core in this locker room. Yeah, I, I think it's meaningful. Um, I, I think any time that you have a situation like this, I always find it interesting to see who the guy is that they replace the letter with. And for Justin Falk to be that guy, first of all, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, he's the best defenseman for the Blues that played last night. And Tory Krug, while he's going to be somebody that's here of significance for years to come, it is still his first year with the team. So it's kind of similar to where Justin Falk was a year ago. So it makes all the sense in the world that it was Falk. But it does say something to me that they actually gave it to Justin Falk last night. So I think it's meaningful, but reading too much into it, like you said, yeah, no, this isn't. This isn't to suggest that like Colton Pareko is at risk of losing right. his letter or anything like that, but I do means, think it's meaningful that he was the guy that got it. It just means you have a lot of leaders in this locker room because yeah. Justin Falk can wear the A just as much as a Braden Shen can wear the A. Coming up next, former Giants outfielder Hunter Pence is going to join the show. Uh, he played last year. That was his final season in the big leagues, and he has announced that he's going to be retired from baseball. I want to find out what that experience was like. I'm just I'm fascinated to hear from the guys that were in the game 
what the 2020 season was like. We saw so many stars that struggled. One of them was Nolan Arenado. Is there any way that he thinks that's going to happen again in 2021? I have a feeling his answer is going to be no. We'll talk to Hunter Pence, the former Giants outfielder, next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. On the ground, down the line, and this game is over. Let's go, HP! Unbelievable. Let's go, HP! Let's go, baby! Holy smoly, guacamole, ripperino, cappuccino. Get your soul, Giants Nation, baby. We're playing some good ball. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not going to stop. Woo! No one there. Woo! Is that Hunter Pence or was that Ric Flair? Yes. Nice. All of the above. Nice. Hunter Pence is a streamer now. He's over on Twitch. Twitch, rather. You should give him a follow there. He also is a four-time All-Star, two-time World Series champion. He's a former Giants outfielder who had some pretty darn good moments against the Cardinals as well, unfortunately. He's joining us now via the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line. Hunter, thanks so much for the time, man. How you doing today? I'm doing very good. I'm not hearing you super clearly, but... Uh... That was a pretty, that was a pretty embarrassing player impersonation. But yeah, that was the MLB, uh, the the players uh, show tournament during the COVID. Oh come on, Hunter, give yourself some credit. That not only was a great Ric Flair impersonation, but that was just a great pump up video for yourself. I need to start doing that when I'm playing MLB the show. <laughs> oh man, that was so stressful. But yeah, uh, yeah, you know, I, that was the, one of the craziest moments. I think we're we're losing Hunter a little bit. We'll have we'll have Tanner recall. We'll have him call yeah. Hunter back, and we'll try to get him on uh, a better line. Fingers crossed, we can do that. But I wanted to ask Hunter Pence, kind of as we're getting into this here. He, he was playing last year in Major League Baseball. He's since announced that he's going to retire. He's, he's done with his playing career. But man, I. I'm always interested to hear from these guys about what playing last season was like, because there were just so many differences. And I wonder how for the guys that are are coming back this year that are going to go through this once again, I wonder if they found some adjustments that could potentially help them going into the 2021 season. Yeah. I'm really intrigued by that, especially for a guy who, who saw it all firsthand and what that can do, not just for individuals, but what it can do for a roster as well. You know, the other thing that I'm curious about is kind of how you perform with guys in batting orders, right? Like this was a guy back in 2013 BK who, who hit 27 home runs, but he also hit in a batting order that had uh, Pablo Sandoval at his prime, you know, Buster Posey at his prime, Brandon Belt at his prime. So that's going to be an interesting kind of wonder to find out kind of how that affects a player in a batting order. Yeah, let's go back out to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line. I think we've got him back on the line. Hunter, you got us, my friend? Yeah, I hear you better. Can you hear me clear now? Absolutely. Now you sound fantastic, my man. So we we were just talking kind of amongst ourselves. I wanted to ask you, because you, you were around the Giants last season, what was the 2020 season like for guys that were in it? How difficult was that to be able to get through? Um, it's tough to say. I think 2020 was difficult for everyone, um, but it was it was it was very strange. It was very stressful, um, just in the fact of you know everyone worrying about their 
up and they had these concerns because, you know, a lot of a lot of baseball players and athletes in general, especially, um, you know, they're they're risk takers. You know, it's it's a very extreme. Um, you know, if you have, you know, when you're older and you have family and you have, you know, high risk things, uh, making sure that everyone is kind of on the same thing. And and even older players. Uh, so it was just it was very difficult, stressful. You weren't able to get your regular reps in with anything like your workouts was, you know, you're cut off from a lot of the things you to get prepared. So I would say it was a, it was a challenge, but it was definitely doable. Hunter, I'm curious, is it more impactful on individual players because, you know, there's so much stress that goes on around that season of, you know, making sure that you're staying safe, wondering what the season's going to look like. Or is that more impactful on a roster and a team because you don't get to have the normal season, the normal clubhouse interaction that you would have in a regular season? You know what? It's just like kind of like what you can make of it. And every team has the same, uh, you know, difficulties going into this season and dealing with the same thing. So uh, it becomes sort of, you know, I felt like the Giants, you know, we did an amazing job and our, our staff did an amazing job. And we kind of took it like – was you know when I was there was you know um, now it's just raw how much do you love the game you're not you're not any energy we have to create that you have to love the game and uh, we tried to like be excited about it we tried to basically be like everyone has to deal with this let's make the actually you know we were very thankful that we got to play the game we love not many people across the country college baseball didn't get to play so there was a very few people getting to play and um, it was special in that sense, but also, like you said, the mental stress of you know families, the country, uh, what was going on, uh, those sorts of things. I think a young hunter would have been like not even like I, I wouldn't have tried that scenario like <laughs> at all. We're talking to Hunter Pence, four-time All-Star, two-time World Series champion. He's joining us here on 101 ESPN. Hunter, I did want to ask you, because you were you were a celebrated prospect coming in. You you hit the ground running, and things worked out for you very well right away. The Cardinals have a young outfielder right now by the name of Dylan Carlson, who's similarly celebrated in their system like you were in Houston. What is that pressure like whenever you broke in as a, as a young outfielder for them? What What is that pressure like whenever you officially make it into the big leagues? You know, like you got to know the personalities. Different people are going to handle it differently. And and honestly, with baseball, you're never. In fact, you get a long term deal. You you know you got a carrot in front of you, and you have that uh, that that nightmare behind. You know, you have and different personalities handle that differently. For me, usually the higher the stakes, the more focused and the better I get. Got it didn't really mess up my focus. I would like. It would push me harder, and I loved that. Uh, this is where I like kind of like the Trevor Bauer thing, where he only wants to sign one-year, two-year deals, or Nolan Ryan, who only wanted to do one-year deals. Uh, it was more of a mental challenge whenever you are, do have that comfort and ease. So uh, I would have to know him as a person, and, and me personally, like I'm always looking at how can I make the teammate better, try to read what the personality is and, and feed them whatever I could. So – uh, I, I think that it's an exciting time. It's a fun time, but it, it is there is a lot of stress, and, and it could go two ways. Hunter, I got to ask you about uh, a guy that everyone in St. Louis is pumped for, and that's Nolan Arenado. You've seen plenty of this guy uh, from the NL West, your time in San Francisco. Is it just simply amazing what this guy can do on the field in terms of defense and then what he does in the batter's box? 
Look, I'm so excited to talk to you guys about Arenado, and I'm excited for the baseball season with uh, a lot of these teams kind of having like somewhat of super teams. But let me tell you this from a player's perspective. And, you know, Arenado was with Colorado his whole career, young, grew up there, big contract and all of this. And now he's been traded to the Cardinals, a very, you know, a very well-established organization, made the, you know, making the playoffs last year, a couple of years, really um, he is the leader. This dude is such a competitor. I've played against him for many years, and I've watched him grow up, and I've gotten to talk to him. And I can, you can feel his competitiveness, his fire, his intensity, and you can see also the skill. This is one of the best defensive third basemen I have ever seen. And in my prime, I could hit the ball pretty hard. Like I don't want to be like whatever, but like if I got all of one in my prime and I hit it at a third baseman, they no one ever caught it. And he turned plays on some of my hardest hit balls at him. Uh, he robbed me of so many balls that were hits like to any other third baseman. He's got incredible hands. Uh, and to me, that shows me that you care about your team. Like your defense being that good tells me that you don't, because offense is what you get. You get paid on your offense. And yeah, defense is whatever, but that's for the pitcher. That's for the team that works the games defense and pitching wins and this dude is a competitor his ego is going to be on the line because he's around a new team he has to prove it he has to earn it and he's going to feel that and i know just how fiery he is you're going to see an incredible player i'm excited to watch him this year well that's just exciting to hear now a follow-up to this hunter is look you you've You've played MLB the show. You've seen Major League Baseball organizations. How the hell did this trade happen from the Colorado perspective? Like, these are the trades that you have to force in Major League Baseball the show. You know, like, this is an unprecedented time now. With you know, I don't, I'm not a business, like, master or, or even know the baseball business, but I understand. What these teams are going through financially, no idea. Even the emotional damage. I know that uh, I heard you guys say I, I didn't really see what how he performed. It was a crazy year. It was a short year. It was a small window. Um, but I know that the whole prior season he wanted to be traded, and there was this whole Arenado. So I don't know if uh, it's a financial thing or. Maybe they needed to clear some of the books because they weren't going to compete, and he's a player that's ready to win championships now. So maybe they were doing it for Arenado's best interest, and they knew that they weren't ready. Or there's there's so many different ways that I, I would never know exactly why that happened. Hunter Pinch joining us here on 101 ESPN. Hunter, you made reference to the idea of super teams across Major League Baseball right now. You got to watch two of them up close and personal last year in the NL West with the Dodgers and the Padres. The Padres just, I, I mean, this is absurd what's happening right now. They, they have traded for seemingly every uh, top-end pitcher that you could ask for. They just gave out $340 million to Fernando Tatis Jr. Uh, what... As a player, what is it like to see this? And do, do you like what the Padres are doing? Because I'll just kind of give my opinion real quick. Like the Dodgers are easy for other teams to look at and say, yeah, there's just no way we're going to beat them. So I love that there's a team that's really going for it, especially within their own division. But I'd be curious from your perspective how you view this right now. I think it's extremely exciting. I think the Padres have a lot to be excited about. I think baseball does. I got to witness Fernando Tatis Jr. Like, obviously, I, I played in the division last year with him. I also got to see him in winter ball. 
And I'm telling you, this is one of the craziest players I have ever seen. And it's not not only is he playing the toughest defensive position, he's an absolutely incredible athlete and amazing at it, but this dude can hit homers everywhere. And he's skinny and he's faster than lightning and he's powerful. Like he goes oppo in places you don't go oppo. He went oppo at our park to like tie a game or win a game uh, last year. Uh, Oracle, it's like unbelievable this guy's potential and also he won the whole the 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 winter ball league this dude has winning in his like dna he somehow he breathes like he brings everyone together he brings excitement so i'm pumped that they're 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 buying into like they have electric youth which you need and they're bringing in uh the veterans around him to give it a chance so i think that the, the padres are very capable and even the dodgers padres series was closer than it looked uh you know bellinger robbed a home run in center in a ballpark that's one of the toughest get a homer to center in um that series could turn if they're not at the ranger stadium uh you know the padres are right there and there's some other teams out there you know we're talking you know the cardinals you guys, anyone, anything can happen in baseball. The White Sox are looking exciting. I'm really excited to see La Russa back in baseball as well. There is so much to, to be excited about right now. You know, Hunter, I'm curious, going back to the Padres, a lot of people have a 50-50 feel on, on what San Diego did in locking up Tatis Jr. for 14 years. Do you think that's good for baseball when you get a guy like that to keep him in that one city and be the face of that franchise that might be a smaller market? Um. Like I said, I don't know the business side of it. I only know from a player side, and, and I can look at like building teams. And I, I that guy is is going to be like the future, the face. Of- you can't get your eyes off of him. He is the, so exciting to watch play. He's doing so many crazy things, and he's so talented. Uh, this is, I, I think, this is, in, in my opinion, like find a way to get him for as long as you can because he's going to make your. He's going to make your organization a lot better organization. Like, this is a guy that you can't wait to watch. See, like, it's it's almost like I, I don't want to put that perspective on him, but it's like when LeBron comes, you, you have to go watch LeBron or Kobe Bryant. And I'm not saying he's those guys, but I think it's the same thing. Like, you need to watch. If you like baseball, you need to go see Fernando Tatis Jr. Play. Hunter. That, that exciting. Last question that I've got for you. Sorry for cutting you off there, Hunter. He's a four-time All-Star, two-time World Series champion. Hunter Pence here on 101 ESPN. I did want to ask you, we were talking about earlier today, you know how this goes, man. You get into spring training and everybody on the outside looking in is like, hey, what's the batting order look like? And so that's what we're doing here in St. Louis. And I am curious, when you have guys like Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado You've played with some damn good hitters. You yourself were an unbelievable hitter yourself. What does it do for guys to be able to hit either in front of or behind those other guys that are seen as, I mean, just massive threats in any lineup, but certainly here in St. Louis, hitting in front of or behind guys like Goldie and Arenado? You know, the biggest thing is I I remember in in our heyday and and the prime when Buster MVP and and we were, were making these playoff runs, a lot of the pressure came on me because they would walk Buster almost every single time there was a runner in scoring position. So, um, you know, having someone that can hit behind uh, a Goldschmidt or an Arenado, because uh, Arenado was an RBI machine. This dude has led the league in RBIs for so many years. And when there's a runner in scoring position, you feel this crazy at bat. So uh, if Arenado's behind Goldschmidt, they're not going to be able to walk Goldschmidt. Um, and I think that could that could turn Gold, you know, whoever's hitting 
uh, a deal right there because they're going to have to pitch to him. He's Hunter Pence joining us here on 101 ESPN. Hunter, man, this was awesome. Incredible insight. We always appreciate the time. Let's do this again soon, my friend. All the best to you and the family. Stay safe out there. Stay healthy. And congratulations on a well-earned retirement. Thank you guys for thinking of me. It's great to talk to you. And I hope you guys enjoy the baseball season there in St. Louis. Absolutely. Keep those Twitch videos coming, Hunter. Keep working on that flair woo. I love it. Ripperino, cappuccino, baby. Woo! <laughs> I love it. That's Hunter Pence, four-time All-Star, two-time World Series champion here on 101 ESPN. That was fantastic. I know the phone line cut in and out there. Yeah. So, you, you, we know, guys. We we know. We can feel it as well. Trust me. I'm I'm waiting on every word. I'm trying to find out if but it's going to go out. When you get an interview like that, when you get somebody like Hunter Pence, where he's so incredible and has such great insight, you power through things like that. And it was such so good to hear him talk about that. You know what I loved? Uh, I mean, he had great stuff on Arenado. And if you if you came in late and you missed it, 101ESPN.com. I highly recommend checking that out on the podcast page. We'll try to piece it together so it's as <laughs> as easy as possible to hear. But uh, what I really loved was what he said about the Padres and what he said about Fernando Tatis yeah. Jr. And the way he described Tatis is exactly why yesterday, I know we were on the same page on this, but that's why you do this if you're the Padres. Because when you have other guys in your sport who are at the highest level not uh, other than Hall of Famers, basically, and that's kind of what Hunter Pence was. He was at the top of the sport without being really a Hall of Fame player. When you have guys like that who look at a young kid, 22-year-old like Fernando Tatis Jr. and say that guy is must-watch, mm-hmm. one of the best players in the sport that's the future of baseball, yeah, you do whatever you can to keep him in your market regardless of what market you're in. Yeah, I mean, look, that's from a player's perspective, and he made it very clear that you know he doesn't know the business side of baseball, but from a player's perspective, that's the more important part when it comes to the game of baseball because if you're a fan – you want the excitement. And from a player's perspective, Hunter said that this guy's not only one of the more exciting players in baseball, he said he will be the face of Major League Baseball. And I couldn't agree more with him. So that's why we were on this page. That's why I tossed that question at him because I was curious. Question. From a player's perspective, you know, do you sit there and you say, oh, man, what are you doing? You're, you're ruining the market for the rest of us. No, you say this guy is the face of the Padres. Stay there because that's good for baseball. By the way, I know Hunter Pence is retired, but man, I wish the Cardinals could sign him on a one-year like minimum contract because that guy would be awesome to have in the Cardinals clubhouse. You know, going I was into curious. I was going to ask him too. Like, did he ever have that interest in St. Louis, or did St. Louis ever have that interest in him of trying to get him here towards the back end of his career? That's Alex Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kylie. Again, if you missed any of that, check it out. 101ESPN.com. Coming up next, just very quickly. Is it time to put Alex Reyes as a starter to rest? I think we can probably stop having that conversation. We'll do it next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. There, Alex will be given an opportunity to look at the starting up chance. But again, we talked about his innings and how that can be a issue moving forward for for the season that we anticipate to have uh, for the length of it. You know, John Gant, similar deal, be getting a little more touches, stretched out a little bit. We can build them up and then transition if we, if it ends up being the case uh, where they go to the bullpen, continue your transition and ramp them up later in camp. I'm not saying Alex Reyes won't start a game for the Cardinals this year. I think I'm ready to say, though, that Alex Reyes will not start the year as the number five starter 
for the Cardinals. Spot start, maybe he gets one here and there. I actually think that it's very likely that that happens for the Cardinals in 2021. But Alex, I think it is officially time to put the Alex Reyes starter dream for 2021 to rest. Are you with me after hearing Mike Schilt yesterday? Yeah, I mean, I think it's obvious that Alex Reyes isn't viewed as a starter going into this season. I think they're still going to continue to stretch him out because let's be honest, the last time this guy has pitched more than, what, 100 innings is back when he was in the minors. Um, Last season, he was at around, what, 54 innings, something like that. Might have been a little less than that. Yeah, I'm showing about 20 20, okay, so maybe it was 54 the year prior to that. But look, this guy has not pitched anywhere near the uh, amount to be a starter. So I think the stretching out will continue. You know, maybe 2022 would be the starter realm for Alex Reyes if he can stay healthy. But yeah, I think that ship is is, uh, finished and completely sailed for me of him being in the rotation this year. I think you try to get him close to 100 innings. Close to 100 innings is what I think. In a 162-game season, I think that's what the goal should be for Alex Reyes going into 2021. Next year, and this has been my thought all along, next year is the year that you target for Alex Reyes to be in your rotation. If he's not next year, then I think the dream officially has has gone and it's it's floated away, and it is no longer on the horizon. But for the here and now, I think Reyes should be viewed as a reliever who's going to give you multiple innings out there, and he's going to be a hugely valuable piece to this bullpen. But that's that's his role going into 2021, and then in the future, maybe we can talk more about what the rotation can look like for Alex Reyes. Another guy in a very similar spot is John Gant. Now, John Gant is good at baseball. John Gant is very good at baseball. And John Gant has been tweet, has been trending on Twitter in recent days. John Gant also met with the media earlier today. Yes! He was asked by the members of the media, John Gant, are you good at baseball? Well, you know, I can't answer that on my own behalf. You'd have to ask somebody else about that. Um, but uh, I'll tell you, I really like baseball a whole lot. Nailed it. The perfect, John perfect Gant. John Gant response. John Gant is one of those good old boys, Dukes of Hazard style. Like he just goes about his business, plays baseball, enjoys his off season, and then comes down to spring training when he needs to. Um, not on any social media, but yet can just have pictures of his hair flowing in training camp, throwing the baseball, his his baseball jersey open with chest hair flowing. This is the good old boy of the St. Louis Cardinals, and I love it. That is just, can we hear that one more time? Because, again, I want to make it very clear. The question was, John Gant, are you good at baseball? There is there is no way to answer that correctly. But if there is a way to answer it correctly, <laughs> it is this from John Gant. Well, you know, I can't answer that on my own behalf. You'd have to ask somebody else about that. Um, but uh, I'll tell you, I really like baseball a whole lot. I'll tell you, I like baseball a whole lot. I may not be good at baseball, but I like baseball a whole lot. Between the accent yep. and the way that he finished that and nailed the landing 10 out of 10, that was fantastic. That's John it. Gant is very good at the game of baseball. I'm going on buying a John Gant jersey right now. Plain and simple. With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario live from the new NBA Granite Studio at the Centene Community Ice Center. Coming up next, the Blues finish off a series against the Sharks tomorrow night. We'll discuss what that game could look like with former NHL defenseman, current Jay Sharks analyst Brett Hedekane. He joins us next on 101 ESPN. But uh, I'll tell you, I really like baseball a whole lot. 
This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kiley. It is BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. We are going to go out to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line to be joined by former NHL defenseman and current San Jose Sharks analyst Brett Hedekin here in just a moment. But Alex, I know there have been a few updates from uh, Blues practice today, and we are live out at ENB Granite Studios at the Centene Community Ice Center. According to Craig Berube, they are still looking into the Barbashev injury, but I know you mentioned this earlier. It sounds like there's a little bit of an update there. Yeah, so basically the NHL media site puts players on taxi squads, brought up, sent down, COVID list, injured list. And and Tom Timmerman reported this, and I went and looked at it, and he's not wrong. About 30 minutes ago, the NHL website has put Ivan Barbashev on the injured reserve list. But I wouldn't buy too much into that because that could just be some book movements right now. Um, if Barubi says... But that means he's out for at least an, uh, some period of it time, would be, right? If he's on the injured list, it's out, I believe, five to seven days is what it would be. So that's on the NHL website. If Craig Barubi said they're looking into it, it might still be something up in the air. Could be more severe than what we know. But for right now, that's at least what uh, Tom Timmerman, Timmerman was reporting. Well, that stinks. I mean, it, if he is on the injured list, if that is true, um, that... That's unfortunate because it would at least signify that there's something Mm -hmm. there more so than just a bruise. So hopefully he ends up being able to come back and he he ends up being healthy. We've got our fingers crossed on that. Right now, the Blues are in this series against the Sharks. And tomorrow night, what do you think they do? What do you think they do on that top line? Um, I would say you either put Sanford or Hoffman up on that top line. I think one of those two is where you go. Uh, with the Ivan Barbashev spot because Hoffman's been scoring goals. He's playing on the left side with Shannon Kairou. So I would do uh, I would do that. I would put him up there in Ivan Barbashev's spot. And then I think you just have to juggle around the third and fourth line if you're going to put Austin Pagansky back in. Wow. So Pagansky, Pagansky goes where Sanford was. Sanford goes up to the top line. And so then your, your bottom two lines as configured, configured there – it doesn't give you a ton of scoring punch, yeah. But you're you're really relying. I, we'll get into this more here in about thirty minutes or so. I, yeah. I think special teams would become that much more important for the Blues if Barbashev is out and Schwartz doesn't come back. Sounds like we've got Brett Hedekin, former NHL defenseman, current San Jose Sharks analyst, via the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line. Brett, thanks so much for the time, man. What'd you think of that game last night? You know, I thought it was a pretty good game. You know, I thought both teams, uh, you know, held some momentum at times, and I think. You know, obviously the Sharks going down uh, that power play goal to start the hockey game. They fought their, themselves back into it. And then you got to give credit to where they, you know, tied the game late in the third period. And then they win it uh, with the Perron goal in overtime. So uh, hard-fought game. I think, you know, some injuries on your guys' side. I think some injuries on the Sharks' side. They both found ways to have other guys step up. So all in all, you know, I think it was a step forward for the Sharks. Obviously, uh, you know, with the Blues where they sit right now ahead of the Sharks, in the standings, it was probably, you know, that additional point is continued to, to help them uh, move up the standings. You know, Brett, I know it's been a positive for the Blues to see another team that hasn't been the Arizona Coyotes because they played them what feels like every single game this season. But from the San Jose Sharks perspective, I know that they've kind of been moving around and adjusting their schedule because of this COVID uh, situation with this season. How much has been, how much has the Sharks been able to kind of overcome that adversity of the schedule always kind of being fluid and shifting around? 
Well, I, I think it actually served uh, them a benefit. You know, they started the season in Arizona. It's, speaking of Arizona, they because of Santa Clara County in California here in the Bay Area where San Jose resides in that county, they had shut down basically all, you know, sports activities and whatnot. And SAP Center was closed, and they couldn't even practice there. So they had to obviously do training camp in Arizona, just like the San Francisco 49ers had to play their remaining games down there as well. And that's where the Sharks started. So, you know, the first 12 games of the year were all on the road. Um, They were going to play the Vegas Golden Knights uh, as well. And then those two games were canceled. And they finally had a chance to come home for a few days, sleep in their own bed, and now obviously just played their first two home games last week. So um, if anything, yeah, it's been fluid. Um, They've had a couple adjustments. But all in all, it was really good for that team to be able to kind of those two games be canceled and for them to finally get home, see their own families and kids, and you know, have a home-cooked meal and sleep in their own bed. Brad, what do you think the expectations are now moving forward to this team, now that they are at least in a little bit more of a rhythm, and they've got a ton of home games coming up here pretty soon. Is this a team that can get, get back into the mix of things in this West Division, or is this more of a transition year for them where maybe they don't make the playoffs, but they find out kind of what they have internally? What, what are the expectations from here on out for, for Sharks fans? Uh, you know, you're, you're asking the perfect question because that's the question. I mean, is this team going to be able to find their rhythm, continue on that rhythm, and be able to make the playoffs, be one of those top four teams? I, you know, I think you know, when you've got Colorado, you've got St. Louis, you've got Vegas, you know, your three teams should be there, you know, the top three, if you will. I mean, that's what everybody's talking about, and I don't disagree. I think all three teams can uh, – can really be there. And I think all the rest of the teams in the West are fighting for that fourth and, and final spot. And can St., uh, you know, the San Jose Sharks capture it? I think the one thing I'm looking at this roster and, you know, the goaltending of Martin Jones was pretty good last night. He's been real inconsistent over the last few years. He's trying to find his game. Devin Dubnik has now been added since uh, from the Minnesota Wild. Um, he's gotten off to a pretty good start. Hasn't had any success on the win column because he hasn't had any goal support the nights he's been in there. He's got a 917 save percentage. I think he's played very well. But when you look at the roster overall, and to answer your question about, you know, what's the expectations of this group, the expectations are is to make the playoffs. I think they have a good enough team. The problem I'm having here right now is I haven't seen a full lineup in there where they've played every guy is firing at all cylinders. Now, last night at times I saw four-line rhythm. I saw six defensemen making things happen and goaltender making good saves. With those ingredients, this team can get themselves back into a playoff mix, but they just can't have any player at this time with a 56-game schedule taking nights off. They just can't have it. How much of a a buzzkill has it been, Brett, with Eric Carlson's injury? I know this is kind of a groin injury that has been nagging him for the last couple of seasons, but that does take away a big identity piece of this team, doesn't it? Absolutely. You know, he's got no goals on the season. He's, he's, uh, he's got four assists. And here's a guy, a two-time Norris Trophy winning defenseman. He's been known to put up huge numbers and, and lots of goals during the course of the year. And since coming over to San, San Jose, he hasn't scored very much. Um, this year, I mean, he just hasn't shot the puck nearly enough. He's looking for plan B and plan C instead of just going on his instincts and throwing pucks at the net being aggressive, shutting his brain off. And he's been, a, I have to say it, he's been a disappointment, I think, for the Shark fans, for the organization. I think he can give us more. Um, 
you know, with this nagging injury and some of the in- other injuries he's had since, you know, being signed by the Sharks, um, they need this guy to be the $11 million player that they signed him to be. And so far that hasn't happened. But again, I think he's still got a lot of upside. I think he's a player that can still get back to that form. Um, but he's going to have to push himself now for the re- remainder of his career. As you know, as you get older in your career, it doesn't get easier. It gets harder and you've got to train harder and you've got to take more of a, a disciplined approach to your, uh, you know, your health, your rest, your nutrition, and your training. And, and hopefully he's going to be doing those things uh, moving forward. Former NHL defenseman, current San Jose Sharks analyst, Brett Hedekin, joining us here on 101 ESPN. Brett, I always enjoy getting the, the perspective of somebody that's not here on a day-in, day-out basis on the Blues. I'm curious, in the games that you've seen so far this year against St. Louis, is there any particular player or is there anything about the Blues style this season that has stood out to you? What, what really jumps off the, uh, off the screen to you as you've watched these Blues versus Sharks games so far this year? Well, I think you guys have done a nice job, you know, you know, bringing guys like Jordan Cairo up. Uh, Oscar Sundquist, I think, has made some strides forward. Um, I, I think Ivan Barbashev, you guys talking about him a little bit, might be injured now uh, on IR. I think he's taken some uh, steps forward. I like Justin Falk, the addition of him. I really like Tory Krug pickup for you guys as well. So I think with you guys, with, with a healthy group, um, and the Stanley Cup experience and pedigree that you have of your veterans and some of this new kind of youth that's kind of starting to backfill, if you will, um, you're a team that could really strike, you know, at the end of the season again. I, I think that you're a good team. Uh, you were you hit all of the strides the other, the other year. Jordan Bennington coming in in January, and you guys roll him all the way to the Stanley Cup finals and win. Um, but overall, I like the balance of that you guys have with, with some of your veterans and some of the young guys that are coming up from, from the backside. You know, Brett, I'm curious. You mentioned Justin Falk, and, and us in St. Louis are very high on this guy, especially the season after. A lot of people were low on him because of the trade that kind of people compared to Alex Petrangelo. Are you seeing a different defenseman in Justin Falk? And more importantly, are you seeing somebody who not only can be a number one defenseman, but can also kind of take the reins for this Blues team moving forward? I do. I, I think, you know, what, what Justin Falk has going for him is that he came from Carolina, and I know the way Rod Brindamore and how and what he expects from his team on a daily basis, not only on the ice, but off the ice. I know Justin Falk and the way he trains off the ice, and he trains with the guys that train me, and I know that the hardest I have ever trained in my career was with the guys, Jay Schroeder, that trains Justin Falk. And so um, I know that this kid's a trained individual, and I think he's only going to get better. He's averaging about 23.57, almost 24 minutes a game for you guys. He's leading the NHL in plus-minus. He's been on the ice for, what, 25 even-strength goals, which I think is one of the leaders in the NHL as well. Um, I think the more confidence he gets as he gets more comfortable being in St. Louis and being around his, this team, he's going to only get better. And so I, I, I think you've picked up a good player there. And, I, and obviously it's hard to lose Petrangelo without question. But I think Justin Falk is a, is a younger player right now. He's got more upside in the long run. I think it was a good move for the Blues. Brett, one guy that I wanted to ask you about, maybe even not specifically about him, but players like this is Jordan Kyrou because He's 22 years old. He, for the first two years that he got time in, in the NHL, it's kind of start and stop, and it just didn't seem like he was totally 100% the guy that Craig Burby trusted out there. 
this year it's been the opposite. He He's playing more ice time. He's pr- producing at a really high level. He has six goals so far in 17 games. When you see these young guys that are able to take this kind of step, as a former player, what do you look for to know if this is sustainable? Is there anything that that we should be paying attention to as we're watching a player like Jordan Cairo to say, okay, this isn't just a flash in the pan. This is real, and it's he's going to be a guy that's here for years to come. Yeah, I think the one thing you can watch with a guy like Jordan Cairo is what he looks like on his tough nights, right? I mean, you, you know, the consistency at, in the NHL is what you need to have. So if your A game isn't there some night, let's say you're banged up, you took a shot off the foot, you know, you've got no legs, and you're out there trying to make something happen. This is where a guy like Jordan Cairo is going to learn that he'll, you know, Baruby will trust him more and more on the nights that he doesn't have it. How else can he contribute? Can he block a shot? Can he take a hit to make a play? Can he get on the forecheck and, and take the body? Uh, use his speed to, you know, c- cause a turnover uh, at the right time. You know, I, I think that what young players, what I see today is – they think that because things are hard on a certain night, that boy, they can just kind of kind of go back in the shadows, right? And just kind of get through the game where, you know, back when we played, you couldn't do that, right? I mean, you couldn't fall back in the shadows. It was just, there was so much more expectation to kind of get involved in the game physically or whatever you had to do. And I think these young players have to be better at that. And I think Jordan Cairo is proving it. I mean, he's got what, six goals on the season, 14 points in the 17 games. Um, He's in a top six uh, forward role position. He's getting an opportunity, and he's proving it. Now he just has to find that consistency on the nights that he doesn't have his A game. Brett, we really appreciate the time today. People can give you a follow on Twitter at your name, Brett, B-R-E-T, Hedekin. Always appreciate the time. Enjoy watching the Blues versus Sharks series, and all the best to you and your family, man. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for having me on, guys. Great talking St. Louis Blues hockey and Sharks hockey. Thanks, Absolutely. Brett. Same to you. That's Brett Hedekin joining us here on 101 ESPN. Man, what he said about Eric Carlson, I I went over and looked at the numbers. Yeah. Whole, we gave Justin Falk a hard time last year. Can you imagine if they got Eric Carlson and then he posted nine goals in his next 120 games as a blue? I know we don't have a whole lot of time to get into this, BK, but this is why you should have so much appreciation. Blues fans should have so much appreciation for Doug Armstrong because he doesn't put his team in a handcuff situation. The San Jose Sharks completely ruined their organization in terms of cup contention with the with the signing of Eric Carlson and frankly with the trade of Eric Carlson. I mean, if you think about it, they made the trade back in 2018 for Eric Carlson from Ottawa, and they and traded that was away. the one with Hoffman, right? And then Hoffman was was sent away again. No, that was that. A, that was a different one. Hoffman stayed in Ottawa. The problem was between Carlson and Hoffman. Okay. Hoffman stayed. They moved on from Carlson because he was an upcoming free agent. But they traded a slew of pay- players on top of a first round draft pick that turned into a second overall pick because San Jose was so bad. And Eric Carlson signs that $11 million per year contract that basically takes him through the year 2026-2027. Going into next season, they only have $11 million of cap space available, and they have six, eight, nine free agents that they have to lock up. And they're also paying Logan Couture, Evander Kane, Timo Meyer, Tomas Hurdle, all top players. They're paying those four guys $25 million combined, $8 million for Brent Burns, $11 million for Eric Carlson. 
half of your salary cap is tied up in five players. I mean, that's not all that dissimilar from the Blues, but the, the problem is that they've got Carlson, who's taking up, what is it, $9 million, $11 million, $11 million a year? $11 of your $80 million that, salary and, and when that guy isn't producing, you're screwed. And, and that's, that's really the issue. Because the other salaries that you just read off, that... If you look at the Blues, it's the same thing. I mean, they've got Tarasenko, they've got Justin Falk, Tory Krug. It's a very similar construction other than the fact, and it's, it's a big other than, but other than Carlson, who the, is, their top you three, can't get this out of him. Their top three defensemen, BK, $26 million combined. The Blues' top three defensemen right now, with Colton Pareko making it about five, Tory Krug with six, Justin Falk six, that's million. $17, yep. $18 million compared to 26 tied up with three guys. That's Alex Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kylie. By the way, so the, the trade that I was talking about, San Jose did acquire both Hoffman and Carlson at the time, and then they, they traded again Hoffman down to Florida. So it was like a, it was a three-team trade, essentially, but they were both traded at the gotcha. same time. I thought I remembered that correctly because the Blues were in on that at the time. And then suddenly, Hoffman. yeah, and then suddenly it ended up, he, he went out to San Jose, and a couple hours later, they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not trading for Carlson and Hoffman. There's some there's some issues there. So that's that's how that worked out. Coming up next, let's dive into the junk drawer here on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. We are live from the new E&B Granite Studio at the Centene Community Ice Center. It's time to dive into the junk drawer, and let's start with this. So we all know that 2020 was a little difficult for everybody. 2021 has been uh, much of the same for a lot of people, although getting better seemingly. A lot of that comes down to the rules. You know, it, it, it can be difficult. We're trying to see our loved ones, our friends. We want to go back out to the bars. We want to go see the Cardinals play. It's tough not being able to go out and socialize with people. Well, one man in Sussex, England, Sussex, has decided it's all just too much. I'm done with it. They have a little, little stricter protocols out in England than we do here in the States. And this gentleman, basically what happens is if you if you are conversing outside with your peers, if you're conversing out of your home with your peers, you can potentially go to jail. You, you get can, in a lot of trouble. But you can talk to them in your home? In your house, it's, it's your thing. It's, I mean, it's frowned upon, but it, typically you're supposed to be with your people in your house. Seems weird, but so, okay. Uh, to trying to yeah. prevent the no, spread. So this gentleman... Hates the people that he's with. He's sick of them. He can't do any more time with them. He's also apparently a wanted man. And he decided things got so bad in his house. He was so sick of being with the people that he's been with all quarantine. Just hand himself in. He turned himself over. He's told the officer, I would rather go to jail and finally get some peace and quiet than stay at my house with the people that I was staying with in quarantine. Wow. Okay, so a couple of questions here. One, what was this guy... Uh, being so it doesn't say in the story what he was wanted for, yeah. but he turned himself in at the police station um, and he, he decided, you know what? I'd rather go to jail. Like, I'd rather go there than be with these people anymore. Like I'm curious because if this was something, you know, I guess no 
crime that makes you a wanted man is, is simple, but if this was like money laundering, petty theft, whatever, yeah, yeah. compared to like murder, like I, I'm imagining this guy's like a murderer or something, and he's like trying to stay away from the cops, but his wife is so obnoxiously annoying <laughs> that he's like, ha, you know what, boys, I'm headed to jail. This isn't worth it anymore. I can't imagine getting to the place. Like, I'm sure we've all had our moments, right? You've probably had a moment. I know I have where you're like, God, I, I just need to get out. I need to go do something, even if it means like driving around or whatever. This dude, it got so bad that just going for a drive, that is not enough. I need way more time than that. Technically, you went for a drive just straight to the police station. I'm going to I need so much time that I'm going to go do some time. <laughs> that, that is the better option for me than continuing to live well, in this house. Well, think of it this way. He goes into prison during COVID pandemic. Maybe he comes out of prison and there's no pandemic. Good point. Right. Touche. So maybe this is beneficial. Tanner, what do you have for us today in the junk drawer, my man? All right, guys. So jewelry is a big thing in relationships. You know, you got necklaces, bracelets. Well, Machine Gun Kelly's dating the actress Megan Fox. And I saw him post on for his Valentine's Day tribute. Quote, I wear your blood around my neck. He captioned his image. And apparently he has a necklace that has some of Megan Fox's blood in it that he wears around all the time. This just clarifies my, my. You were talking the other day. You need a push. Gift, push present? Right? You push want me present. to give my wife some of my blood? I think this makes a lot of I sense. I think this is a terrible She can idea. always carry a little bit of you around with her. Uh, technically, she gets that with, you know, having a wedding ring from me. That's no, a little bit of Very me. different. This is a real piece so. of you. That's a piece of your so. pocket where you, you, you spent your money and you gave so. her this gift. A, a necklace that has your blood inside of it. Well, you're talking with me about a push present. Maybe your wedding gift to Kara No, totally different. She, she wouldn't appreciate this. Your wife, though. My wife would appreciate <laughs> my blood. I, I think would really appreciate well, something like this. We, we have a child, so that will be part of me as well. This just clarifies and solidifies my thought all along. Megan Fox is a vampire. What? <laughs> yeah, Megan Fox is a vampire, and now Machine Gun Kelly is a vampire, and both just enjoy blood. From the 618, apparently Billy Bob Thornton and Angelina Jolie did this back in the day as well. No, they swapped spit, I thought. Okay, well, a lot of people do that, Alex. That's oh. that's not all oh, no, that, that was with That was with her brother. I, I'm... I'm, I'm getting lost in the Angelina Jolie stories, but there, that is correct. There are a few of them. There's a lot I, of them. If I I'm understand how that could happen. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up next, the two new additions for the Blues are starting to settle in, and that's going to be a big deal specifically for the power play. That's how they're going to have to win games in the next few weeks. We'll talk about it coming up next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. He's starting to figure out how we play a little bit, and uh, defensively, he's been fine. He's uh, worked, worked, and uh, worked himself to good spots defensively, and um, he's doing a good job there. And then, uh, you know, he he takes up. He, he's a he's really good. He gets opportunities, and he capitalizes on them. That was Craig Berube talking about Mike Hoffman settling into the Blue system. He certainly is doing exactly that. Hoffman has 10 points in his last 10 games. Really, it's the last eight that you can kind of focus in on where he's he's found himself again. And that's basically the start of the Coyote series. Since then, five goals, eight points. He's a plus five in those eight games. And really the most important stat of it all. 
Mike Hoffman in his last eight games has 30 shots on goal. 30. That's an average of almost four per game. That's the player that the Blues expected that they were going to be bringing in to this locker room. And in those eight games, he's being rewarded with ice time. 16 minutes, more than 16 minutes of ice time per game over that eight-game stretch. Alex, for me, especially with a lot of these injuries that are now starting to take form for the for the Blues, Mike Hoffman's importance just took another step up. It took another notch up, and it's pretty significant for them that he seems to be coming around at the right time. It's presenting opportunities for him, too, though. I mean, he started this season on the third line with Robert Thomas because they were so top-heavy with guys like Jaden Schwartz. They wanted Zach Sanford to work again with O'Reilly and Perron, but now you're in the position where Mike Hoffman's playing with O'Reilly and Perron or Jordan Kyrou's playing with those guys, and Hoffman's playing with Shen. You know, it goes beyond his goals, too, though, BK. He's starting to learn the system of Craig Berube, and that's what we talked about at the beginning of the season, right? The fast lane slogan, be patient. It's be patient with Mike Hoffman because he's learning a new system. He's learning how to forecheck now. He's learning how to be heavy on the puck in the offensive zone because for his entire career, it's Mike Hoffman, go to this spot, and we'll get you the puck. Last night was a perfect example. He was fighting for that puck in the offensive zone on multiple occasions, which is essentially what led to that Braden Shen goal. He's pushing for it. He's making that play so that Shen can go to the front of the net and smack home that rebound. This confidence, though, is coming, and in my opinion, it's coming from that game where he scored two goals at six on five against Arizona. That's really what broke out for him. But if you look at it in those eight games that you were talking about, two of those eight games, BK, started when he was with Robert Thomas on the third line, but then the next six he's been playing on the top two lines with either O'Reilly and Shen. It always comes back to the guys that you're playing with. And for Mike Hoffman, when he's paired up with guys that are puck hounds, that gives him an opportunity to present. But to your point, you need him now. Like You can't have the Mike Hoffman of the first six games of the season. You need Mike Hoffman of the last ten games of the season because you were without all of these guys who create offense. But this is why, in my opinion... The power play is going to be crucial for this Blues team in this stretch until you get Barbashev and Schwartz and Thomas and Tarasenko back because that's what's going to win you hockey games from now until you start to get healthier on your roster. Yeah, he has three points this year on the power play. That's where it's got to step up still. He he still needs to be better there. One power play goal on the season for the Blues from Mike Hoffman, and it was last night. And this is what you need to see out of him moving forward because now with Barbashev likely out of the lineup on Saturday and we'll see from there what it looks like. The Blues bottom six right now, you're looking at one line with Pagansky, Sunquist, and play. Probably not expecting a whole lot of scoring out of that line. Now they might, but it would be more of a surprise than than it typically would be with their third line. The fourth line right now with Clifford, De La Rose, and McEachern has given you everything you can possibly expect from them. But again... That's not a line that you're expecting goal production from. And even now, your second line, if you're going into this one with Shin Hoffman, Kairou, I'm not sure how they're going to configure these things. Those are those top two lines are where your scoring production has to come from. And really, those are the same guys that are on the ice for the power plays. So Kairou, O'Reilly, Perron, Hoffman, Shin, Sanford, but really those first five names that I mentioned, they have to be great over the next week or two, up until the point when you get Schwartz and or Barbashev back, those guys really have to impose themselves because 
you're running out of depth now. You're running out of guys that you can throw out there that you feel can give you a scoring punch from the bottom two lines. You are, and you know, there are a couple of guys that if you want to promote them, which if Barbashev goes on the injured list, you might see a promotion to the taxi squad bringing up a guy, you know, like um, Curtis McKenzie that you brought in in the offseason who has NHL experience. He's playing in Utica right now. Nolan Stevens is playing in Utica. You have other guys, but all of these guys are third and fourth line players. These guys aren't top six forwards. You don't need top six forwards because you have those top six forwards. You have O'Reilly, you have Perron, Shen, Hoffman, Cairo. You have guys that can play top six minutes. What you need right now are guys that can play disciplined hockey for Craig Berube on the third and fourth lines so that it is not a liability to throw those guys out there and feel like they're going to have the Blues trailing because then you're playing catch-up hockey. Blues have done awesome at catch-up hockey this season and in the past three seasons – You need the third and fourth line to play responsible hockey at five-on-five to create offensive opportunities. They don't need to be goal scorers. If they are, that's great. You don't need them to be, though. You need your top guys to be your top guys, whether it's five-on-five or power play, which the Blues have. It's a matter of the guys who are stepping in, McEachern, De La Rose, Pagansky, Clifford, Sundquist, who a lot would consider him a top-six forward. Those are the guys that have to go out there and just play offensive puck hounding hockey so that you can get the opportunities for those top six forwards and not wear them down. Yeah. And the reason why this is the case is Tarasenko, Bozak, Thomas, all on IR. Those are all guys that at some point this season could easily configure into the top six. Mm -hmm. Jaden Schwartz, Ivan Barbashev, both out right now. Those are guys that have and will contribute in your top six forwards. That's five forwards that at some point this year, or often this year, we're going to be expected to take top six minutes. Any team in the NHL, literally any of them, if you have five guys that at a minimum are top nine forwards for you, if you take those out of your lineup, yeah, things get a little bit more difficult. So this is not, I want to I be clear here, this is not me being low on the blues right now. They just have a lot of injuries. The injuries have piled up to the point where it's going to be really difficult in a time when the schedule kind of opens up for them. It, it, this should be where they start kind of piling up the wins. But without so many significant pieces in the lineup, it's going to be really hard to do that. They still can, but it's going to be more difficult to do that. I did want to ask you, Alex, yesterday I was listening to your postgame show with Joey and Curbs and kind of bringing this back to Mike Hoffman. You guys were talking about whether or not, if this continues from Hoffman, if if this is the guy that the Blues can expect the rest of the year, does that give the Blues some insurance for Jaden Schwartz in the offseason? Here's what Joey Vitale and Chris Kerber had to say for, uh, about that yesterday after the game. Now, if you have Mike Hoffman and you have Vladimir Tarasenko, that's back. Well, then, then there's then you fill your top six. So maybe it's something you could move on from a little bit. But if you don't keep Mike Hoffman, then I I agree. I think there needs to be a top six, and I think that it's going to be very important for the Blues to keep. Who would Jaden be- Schwartz uh, is is your own draft pick? He plays a better two hundred foot two way game than Mike Hoffman, and he's got a couple years younger. Well, and he's going to be cheaper this summer. Well, I was just going to ask you, who do you think would be cheaper between the two? It's going to be easier to keep. Jaden Schwartz, I believe. Yeah. Than Mike Hoffman. Do you agree with that? I do because Mike Hoffman was a premier top free agent this offseason. And if it wasn't for COVID, I think you're talking about a guy who would have signed a four or five year contract with six or seven million dollars per year. 
he could have got what Taylor Hall got because he was the goal scorer. The problem was COVID hit, and a lot of teams didn't want to spend that money. Look, my, uh, Taylor Hall was the only one who got north of that $6 million. He got $8 million, and he doesn't even have goals right now for the Buffalo Sabres. And he got a one-year deal. Exactly. It wasn't a multi-year contract. The difference is goal scorers get paid. Jaden Schwartz isn't the flashy goal scorer type of player. He is a 200-foot Craig Berube system player. Now, would another team look at him and say, man, he would be awesome for our team. Let's go give him a contract. Yeah. Mike Hoffman, when he hits free agency, and if he continues this pace and wraps up the season with 25-plus goals, if he does, he's going to hit that market and somebody's going to say, we need to pay this guy six, seven, eight million million because he's a goal scorer. Jaden Schwartz is younger. Jaden Schwartz is a, a better player, objectively. A better player, especially on this system. Now, Mike Hoffman could get there, but Jaden Schwartz is the guy that makes the engine go for this Blues team. I think Jaden Schwartz being a homegrown talent, too, is also going to help the Blues in the case of getting him re-signed. Braden Shen kind of set the precedent of what those contracts are going to look like for a guy like Jaden Schwartz. Mike Hoffman's not going to sign that contract. Jaden Schwartz would sign that contract. But is he intrigued by free agency? That's why I brought up this topic on postgame, because if he is, and if he says, man, I want to see what's out there for me, I'm 27, 28 years old, I think I could get paid. If Mike Hoffman, who's 31 years old, 32 going into next season, sees the free agent market and says, you know what, I like the way that this Blues team pays, plays, maybe I come back for four years at $6 million per year. That's where it becomes leverage to where do the Blues tell Jaden Schwartz, hey, we want you back but we're going to need a deal somewhere around this range if Mike Hoffman's thinking, man, I like this spot. I might want to stay here. See, I don't think I would do a multi-year deal with Hoffman. I, I think given the way that the Blues play, if he wanted to come back on a one-year deal, if, if the market once again didn't develop for him, I think that is the leverage or really the insurance that the Blues have with Hoffman. If you're going to do a multi-year deal, I think the only one that you get done out of these two players is Jaden Schwartz. I don't know that I agree that he's going to be significantly cheaper, though. Mike Hoffman, I, I understand there were a lot of other concerns or a lot of other things that went into this uh, over this offseason, but it's going to be a jumbled mess once again going into next offseason because you had so many guys that settled for that one-year contract going into 2021, and you still have a flat salary cap. It's not like these teams are getting a bunch of relief and now they're get going up $10 million in the cap next year. It's going to be the same that it was a year ago, and there's a lot of teams that now have another year for their younger players where they're going to have to re-sign some of their own homegrown talent. They've got the same issues that the Blues have with Jaden Schwartz. So I I don't know that Mike Hoffman's going to be significantly more expensive. I think Jaden Schwartz is probably looking at six, six and a half million dollars per year, maybe five, six years, something like that. Um, and when you have a guy like that, I, I don't know that Hoffman's going to get a whole lot more than Jaden Schwartz would on the open market. Maybe I could be wrong you're, on that. You're though. right in that mindset, BK. I mean, especially because Schwartz is the 200-foot player and he's younger. But, look, guys get paid for goals, and that's just kind of the way that the league is when it comes to the free agency. I mean, that's why Taylor Hall gets paid the money he does because he won an MVP and he scored, what, 30-plus goals in that season. I hear you, but that guy didn't get paid. Like, this offseason, we didn't see those guys get rewarded. We well, got $8 million, which is on getting paid. On a one-year deal, though. And, and in the NHL, all of these guys, they want certainty. And but so at for 
for him to settle for that seemed like a, a pretty big disappointment for Taylor Hall this offseason. You could say settled, though, but, I mean, Mike Hoffman got a year and $4 million, and people would say that Mike Hoffman might just be as good of a player as Taylor Hall because of the consistency that comes with it. That's you, what I'm saying. Both of them are, are goal scorers. That's their entire game, and neither of them got what people expected them to get. Cap-wise, though, length-wise, they didn't. Salary, though-wise, I mean, $8 million. If it wasn't COVID, Taylor Hall would have gotten an 8 by 8 deal, which it's a lot. I think if this wasn't COVID, Mike Hoffman would have been signing something. Look, he's made $5.5 million on his last contract pretty much every season. I think it was a four-year deal for around 20-something million dollars. He would have gone into this free agency without COVID, and he probably could have gotten himself six or seven million dollars per year for about six or seven years. I don't know if Schwartz is around that area. I think they're going to be close in terms of money. It just seems to be teams will pay goal scorers more than they'll pay guys who play a certain system, if that makes sense. Sure, no, it makes all the sense. I just wonder what's changed from this offseason to next. Mm-hmm. Like, these guys didn't get paid this offseason. Right. There was clearly a reason for that, and it was COVID. That, that's still here. Mm-hmm. It didn't change. These teams are not having full fans in the stands. The cap is not going to significantly spike going into next year. And a lot of these teams, now that you've played another season, have other young guys that also need these long-term extensions. It's one of it's a really interesting storyline to follow moving forward. What does that mean for Mike Hoffman? What does that mean for Taylor Hall? What does that mean for Jaden Schwartz? I don't know, but I, I think Jaden Schwartz is going to get paid. I think there are teams that will look at the fact that he was one of the best playoff players for the Blues over the last few seasons, one of the more important players for the Blues in their run to the Stanley Cup, and they'll say, we need a guy like that to do what the Blues did. So I, I think he's going to get paid more than a lot of fans are expecting, potentially, and I, I don't know that that same payday is coming for, for Mike Hoffman. I could be wrong there, though, because we were all proven wrong with what happened this last offseason. Yeah. With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service tax line. Bet it or forget it. Coming up next. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Vegas sets them up, and we're here to make the call. It's BK and Ferrario's. Bet it or forget it on 101 ESPN. Five seven eight zero is the Air Comfort Service text line for bet it or forget it. Bet it or forget it. Let's start with this one from the text line, the three one four. Guys, better to forget it. One Cardinals young outfielder hits at least 20 home runs. One of the Cardinals young outfielders hits at least 20 home runs this year. Alex, you betting it or forgetting it? Yeah, I'll bet it. I think between O'Neal and Carlson, one of those guys is going to hit 20 home home runs. Frankly, in in an optimistic world, I could see both of those guys hitting 20 home Woo! runs for you. Very Getting optimistic spicy. world. Very optimistic world here, but I would say heavily towards a guy like Dylan Carlson, who we talked about. We felt like 15 was achievable for him. I think in a good season with a protection of Arenado and Goldschmidt and how he grows this year, I think you could see a guy like Dylan Carlson hit 20 home runs. So I would say bet that. I'm going to say forget it. I don't see a young outfielder hitting 20 home runs this season. I think we're going to have some big question marks to solve in left field. Carlson, I think he'll have a good year, but I don't know if he gets to 20 home runs. I'm going to bet it. I I think I'm with you, Alex. I think one of those two guys, I think the more likely of them is Tyler O'Neill gets to 20 plus homers. 
But this is this almost feels weird to me because I'm kind of betting against my theory as to what's going to happen with the outfield. I think Lane Thomas is going to be the starting outfielder by the end of the year. I guess the question is, how long does it take to get there? How much runway do they give Tyler O'Neill? And how many opportunities does he get if there's a DH? So it, there's a few different outs here for me. I'll go ahead and bet it. I think one of them does get to 20 plus homers. The concern would be O'Neill struggles early on. He ends up getting replaced by Lane Thomas. They don't have a DH this year. And then Carlson hits like 17. Won't struggle when he's hitting in the two hole and just mashing fastballs. Speaking of which, bet it or forget it, Alex. Tyler O'Neill bats second in the lineup at least 10 times this upcoming season. Oh, 10 times in 162 games? Oh, yeah. I'm betting on this one. Yeah. I, you're going to test any theory that's going to work right now, and it's going to ride the hot player. It's going to ride the guy who is hitting, getting on base for you. I know, a little little, little special there for you. A little spicy Ferrario is on two bet it or forget it's. Um, you're going to test the theory with O'Neal. You're going to test the theory with DeYoung. You'll test the theory with Carlson. Heck, you might even test the theory, as Mike Schilt said, with Paul Goldschmidt or Nolan Arenado in that two spot. But 10 games, it just is a matter of getting on a little bit of a hot streak here. So I'm going to go optimistic once again. I think Tyler O'Neal is going to get there. I'm going to stick with my theory. I'm going to bet it. I'm going to forget it. I don't oh, think geez, he gets T-bone. a game. I don't think Two he gets a game on. No. Tanner's such a hater. I, come on. I don't think he's going to get that. I think if you're going to go with the two spot, it's going to be, I would see DeYoung ahead of O'Neal before getting a shot. And then Goldie or Arnado getting a shot before O'Neal. To me, O'Neal chases too much. Pitchers would just continue to pitch him out of the zone. He'd still chase. His, his chase rate was high again last season. I'm going to forget it. That's all I hear from you, T-Bone. I so earlier today I posted on my Twitter account I'm at BK Sports Talk. Alex is at Ferrario 101 ESPN on Twitter as well. Um I posted understanding that neither of these two is all that likely. Who would you rather see bat second for the Cardinals this year, assuming that Carlson or Edmund is at leadoff, one of those two guys, and then Goldie Arenado bat three four. So assuming all of that being the case. Who would you rather see bat second for the Cardinals, Tyler O'Neill or Paul DeYoung? What do you think won amongst Cardinals fans? We're now about 500 votes in on this. I would say DeYoung won. I'd say DeYoung. I voted for DeYoung. 68% towards Paul DeYoung batting second Did you in the give order. them my explanation on Twitter, though, BK, of him the, hitting fastballs? I said the premise is that batting in front of Goldie Arenado would mean more pitches to hit, potentially maximizing their production. Okay, well, they don't know anything. I think that I'm going to take the under here. I think I'm with – I'm actually with Tanner on this. Oh, I think the more so pretty, likely huh? of the two is Paul DeYoung to bat second. I, I tweeted this out, and then my guy, Mike Petriello, got back with me. He, he said he thinks that it is actually more important to bat behind one of the more fearsome hitters in the order. That has more significance than batting in front of. So I think if you're looking at it through that perspective, maybe it is actually Carlson batting first, uh, Goldie second, and then you put one of those guys third with Arenado like batting sandwiched fourth. in between them? Correct. So you would go one... Uh, Maybe it is whether it be Carlson or Edmund, and then two go with one of those guys, probably Goldie. Third, you would bat O'Neal, DeYoung, whomever that you want to get more from, and then fourth, you would bat Arenado. I thought I think that's really interesting if, too. If that's the case, I think I would do Edmund lead off Goldschmidt two and put Carlson in the three hole right in between Arenado and Goldschmidt and try and get the best out of that for the young rookie. 
Maybe. I think you could see that as well. You And then you'd have Edmund then, batting leadoff. Yeah, and then put De Jong four and, and then uh, our fifth and then O'Neal six. Sure. Yeah, I, I could see that as well. I think there's some I interesting like constructions that you could go with here. Uh, 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line to get involved on Bet It or Forget It. Guys, Bet It or Forget It. Mike Hoffman finishes this season with at least 20 goals. Mike Hoffman finishes this year with at least 20 goals. So they've got 41 games remaining. He's at six so far through 16. Got 39 games remaining. 39 games. Math is very, very difficult. <laughs> 56, 58, it's the same thing. 39 games remaining, and they said 15 goals. 20 goals 20 on the goals. season. Boy, that's... That's probably right at the number. That's going to be... I think that's right around where he's going to wrap up. He's got six right now in 16 games, but you know that ice time's going to be amplified now with the news of Ivan Barbashev going down for at least six weeks. Um, and no Jaden Schwartz, no Tarasenko, no Robert Thomas. I would say bet it on this one because he's going to see a lot more power play time. I think he's starting to feel it on the power play. I think he's going to get a little more time with Braden Shen and Jordan Cairo, which is a lot of offensive opportunities. I'm going to bet this one. I think you might see a little more than that, but I'd put it at 20 and I'd say the over, so I'll bet it. I'm going to bet it too. I think Hoffman's getting ready to have one of those streaks where it's four goals in maybe three games or something or something where he's, he seems like he's on the verge of breaking out. I think he's going to go on a streak here and I think he'll pass 20 pretty easily. So I'll bet this one. I'm going to bet it because of the scenario that we're in right now with the blues. If Jaden Schwartz doesn't come back soon, that dude has a lot on him in terms of the offensive pressure that is going to be placed upon Mike Hoffman. He, he needs to produce in a big way, especially over the next couple of weeks or so. If this injury for Jaden Schwartz is is more significant. So uh, Mike Hoffman definitely needs to step up. By the way, I don't think we've passed this along yet. There was some news yeah. on the Ivan Barbashev front. What What's the update on so him? So the Blues put it out there that he is going to be uh, reevaluated in six weeks due to, um, I don't know if they said it was a broken ankle. It's an injury to his left ankle that they're calling this. He took a basically shot off of that ankle. I would imagine it's broken. Yeah, uh, six weeks it seems Six that way. weeks reevaluated. So they've re-called Nathan Walker from Utica who has two goals in four games to give themselves some depth but um you know that's that's a big blow with no nate with no ivan barbashev now and you're right that's amplified time for mike hoffman you know the player that's going to have the most pressure on him to perform now bk zach sanford because zach sanford is now going to in my opinion be put on that line with o'reilly and perron and he's going to have to perform the way that he performed last season and in the postseason with those two guys that six weeks evaluation time by the way is significant because we've talked about how this is kind of the the softest part of the schedule, if you will. Their next 10 games are basically against California teams, the lesser teams in this West Division. Well, in six weeks, that's when you start getting into the grind. Colorado, Vegas, Minnesota. That's basically your entire schedule down the stretch starting in April. So that's, that's right around that six-week timeline. Hopefully things can progress by then because this team's going to need Ivan Barbashev going up against especially the Vegas Golden Knights. Yeah, and getting him back towards that time, you know, hopefully he'll be able. The bad news is it's an ankle injury, which means he's not allowed to skate to keep yeah. his kind of performance up and keep his, um, his, his, his strength up when it comes to skating. So that's going to be huge. I'm wondering if they try 
trying to amp up that return of Vladimir Tarasenko safely, of course. It's not like we want to get him back if he's on 100%, but he's been skating with the team these last couple of games, or days, I should say. Today, he was out there with a full practice squad uh, looking good, so hopefully he can get closer with that. Schwartz is still day-to-day, which is a good sign. Um, But, you know, when I play poker, BK, I have a saying. It's called lose early, win late. And so I think the Blues are losing players early. They're going to gain and win some late in terms of health. Does that work here? It's close enough. It works here. He's Alex Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kylie. We're live from the new E&B Granite Studio at the Centene Community Ice Center. Coming up next, as I was thinking about the Colts' decision yesterday to trade for An- or not trade for Andrew Luck, to trade for Carson <laughs> Wentz, it reminded me of a situation that the Cardinals were placed in and how the Andrew Luck retirement kind of applies to the Cardinals and where they were the last five years. We'll talk about that coming up next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. So we talked yesterday about how the Colts had to make this deal. They had to. They, they went out and they got Carson Wentz. And as much as I'm out on Carson Wentz, I know you've been out on Carson Wentz. It makes sense. And they've been in this spot for the last three years now, ever since the abrupt retirement of Andrew Luck. The Colts thought they had their quarterback situation answered. Andrew Luck was one of the greatest quarterback prospects uh, in a generation. We're talking right now, this offseason, everything in the NFL is going to be about Trevor Lawrence. Trevor Lawrence has been billed as basically the next Andrew Luck, a can't-miss, one-in-a-million quarterback prospect. Andrew Luck was that prior, and the, the talk at that time was, this is the best quarterback prospect since John Elway. That's what the Colts had, and they lost it abruptly. I want to bring this back to the Cardinals for a second, because... I think that there has been a lot of deserved criticism of the way that the Cardinals have approached the last five years or so, basically trying to find that middle of the order bat that they were very clearly missing. The Colts are having to scramble. They, they signed uh, Philip Rivers. They have traded for Carson Wentz. They traded three years ago for Jacoby Brissett. The reason why they had to do all of those moves was because of the abrupt retirement of Andrew Luck. Mm-hmm. The same is true of the Cardinals. We thought about it at the time. We continue to talk about it here and now since. But we can't underestimate the loss of Oscar Tavares and what that meant from a pure baseball perspective for this Cardinals team. Alex, I went back last night, and as I was thinking about this, I I wanted to look back at the prospect rankings from when Oscar Tavares was making his way into the big leagues. And in 2014, if you look at where he was, and that was the year that he made his debut in the big leagues, He was the number three prospect, not in the Cardinal system, in all of baseball. The number three prospect. To give you a sense of what what I mean by that, if you look at the top position player prospects in all of baseball, here's a few of the guys that were behind him at the time. Miguel Sano, Javi Baez was seventh, Carlos Correa was eighth, Chris Bryant was ninth, Francisco Lindor was tenth. Wow. The Cardinals had the bat, potentially, that we're talking that we've been talking about for so long and tragically he passed away. And so the Cardinals for five years now have been trying to piece that together the way that the Colts were trying to piece together what they're doing at the quarterback position. And I'm not, I want to be very clear. I'm not making light of Oscar Tavares passing, but from a pure baseball sense, when we're talking about the construction of the roster, what they've been missing, 
They tried to be able to piece things together with Jason Hayward. They tried to make this thing work. Um, when you, when you look at what they did trading for Marcelo Zuna. Marcelo Zuna, they did it again with Goldie. Now they are adding in Nolan Arenado. It's taken time. That's what it takes when you lose somebody like Tavares or for the Colts when the abrupt retirement happens with Andrew Luck. So I, I do think that as you're looking to the NFL right now, the top storyline yesterday was the Colts f- trying to find their quarterback here in St. Louis in a lot of ways. We can kind of understand what the Colts are going through trying to figure out the most important position in the sport because the Cardinals have been trying to figure out the most important spot in their lineup since the unfortunate and tragic passing of Oscar Tavares. Yeah, you know, the more you talk about Tavares, the more I think about another team, the Kansas City Royals and what happened with Giordano uh, Ventura. This was a guy that, look, they they won a World Series with. And then the the tragic death in the offseason of Ventura – and that completely altered it. They were searching for another starting pitcher to kind of put them back into that that uh, that that spotlight, and that's what the Cardinals have gone through. You know, the difference for me is the Colts. They have that winning team around the quarterback. They just need that final piece. The Cardinals, at the time of Tavares's death, was he was one of the pieces. Like they were hoping to still build with Tavares. He Mm -hmm. was the centerpiece, but they were still searching for those pieces to make them that championship contender, and it halted everything because without that piece, without that centerpiece of the order that you're hoping to build upon, then you're putting more onus on a Harrison Bader who was supposed to be a complementary piece, more onus on a Matt Carpenter who was supposed to be a complementary piece, a Paul DeYoung, a, a Colton Wong, all of those those guys that were supposed to be the you know the well, Memphis think even, just look to the outfield right like how much differently do we view Randall Grichik at the time if and instead Steven of Piscotti. trying to be a cleanup hitter those guys are asked to be six and seven hole hitters right, right? and Tommy Pham it completely changes the complexion of your lineup much like in in the NFL when you have that quarterback you can start evaluating what you're missing around him when you don't have your quarterback. Everything is about finding the quarterback because nothing else matters. And for the Cardinals over the last five years, really, it's been how do we find a way to get the middle of our order to be strong? And they've been doing everything they can to be able to find those guys. And in some ways they did. They ended up doing about as good of a job as you can of piecing that thing together without having multiple of those guys there. Finally, for the first time, and now it's been six years since uh, the tragic passing of Tavares, it took that long for them to finally be able to kind of overcome that. Because if Tavares was still there, let's also remember he's a cost-controlled, cheap, young position player with promise. We don't know what he would have become. Maybe he wouldn't have lived up to that prospect billing. I wish we would have been able to find out. Um, But if if he did live up to what he was expected to be, if kind of like... Uh, Carlos Correa and Chris Bryant and Javi Baez and Francisco Lindor, who were ranked below him in the prospect ranking, if he reached that height, man, imagine how much differently we are talking about the Cardinals from 2015 to 2020 than what we ended up actually saying. You're talking about guys that are on this roster still or maybe moved for different pieces, right? Like you're not making that trade with, uh, with the Atlanta Braves, which I think we can all agree that wasn't a trade that really hurt the Cardinals in terms of prospects that they gave Or maybe up. they do, and now instead of being the, number, the, the cleanup, number four, clear-cut, obvious, big bat in your order – 
Now, maybe Ozuna is a little bit more comfortable, similar to how he is down in Atlanta right, right now. You and, know, And if you don't pull off that trade because you don't need the outfielder, maybe you're able to keep on a Sandy Alcantara or a Zach Gallon that you gave up with those guys. And those players are either part of your rotation or you're not trading those two for Marcelo Zuna. Maybe you're trading those guys for a third baseman. Maybe those guys can help you acquire a Nolan Arenado at the time or acquire some other piece. It all kind of, it's the trickle down. It's the butterfly effect of how that happens to the Cardinals organization. And because of the the death of Oscar Tavares, it created that tri- that ripple effect of, okay, well, now we got to go find an outfielder. Well, this outfielder didn't pan out. Now we got to go find another outfielder. Well, this outfielder's not getting the offense done. Now we got to go get a first baseman. Well, the first baseman needs some help. Now, <laughs> like you see how it all yeah. leads to something else. That trade for... Um, it's a domino effect, basically. That, that trade for Jason Hayward, BK, I mean, essentially they needed more help for the outfield, which led them to signing Dexter Fowler, which also led them to you know, making the signing of Mike Leak because they hit the depth of their pitching staff. The Leak trade turns into the Tyler O'Neill, Justin Williams. Like, you see how it all kind of affects. It avalanches on itself. Oscar Tavares in itself could help the Cardinals move in another direction to find pieces rather than what they've been searching for. It's a good point on on Dexter Fowler as well. The 314 Texter, uh, 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. From the 314, guys, if the cards had Oscar, they might have never uh, signed Dexter Fowler, and maybe then they end up going out and getting Max Scherzer as well. There's a million different transactions that go differently. Yeah. A million of them. And I've talked a lot about how the Cardinals have been kind of chasing their tail in the outfield where you you kind of you go back to the Marco Gonzalez trade Mm -hmm. where they trade Marco Gonzalez for Tyler O'Neill and Tyler O'Neill hasn't been able to perform up to his uh, the standards that we all expected. But he still needs to get more opportunities, right. so they di- don't give those opportunities to Randy Rosarena. So now Randy Rosarena gets traded to the Rays for a left-handed pitcher that could have just as easily been Marco Gonzalez. Yeah. So it, it's all interconnected. It'd be an interesting conversation with John Mozeliak, and, and you know, obviously, I wonder if I wonder if now with the with the luxury of time, I wonder if he could kind of take us in, through in that In hindsight, stuff. just to kind of look at it and say, you know, what happened with the organization's blueprint when Oscar Tavares passed away? Because it seems like there was a lot of trying to fix something rather than let it play itself out. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line from the 618. Ah, the light bulb finally went off for BK. It takes time to do these things. I understand. I, I get it. Um, but yeah, I think this was a light bulb moment for me of that was a, a legitimate. It was a fork in the road moment for the Cardinals franchise, something they had. There was nothing they could do about it, obviously. And it completely changed the trajectory of what the Cardinals were trying to build at the time. And I think John Mosaylock, and this is one thing that I have been steadfast about. I think John Mosaylock deserves a lot of credit for being able to maneuver that even with all how stunning that news was he was able to adjust on the fly he changed the way that he was building the team and they've 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 done an admirable job of doing that and now you're finally back into the window of trying to win right here and now Mm -hmm. with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson I'm Brandon Kylie. coming up next we'll cross things over with the fast lane here on 101 ESPN this is the BK and Ferrario podcast now here's BK and Ferrario Time now for the crossover. Brought to you by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. Close to home or close to work. For quality tires and expert auto service, you can always count on Dobbs. 
101 ESPN broadcasting live from the Centene Community Ice Center inside the ENB Granite Studio. Bernie Federko's only choice for granite countertops, cabinets, and flooring. Crossing things over with the fast lane with Alex Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kylie. We've been broadcasting live from the new ENB Granite Studio at the Centene Community Ice Center. Brad Thompson back in the studio at 101 ESPN. BT, what's good, man? Not much, fellas. I miss you, but I'm sure you're having a good time out there. Always fantastic to be out here. So I don't know if you heard our last segment or not, BT, but we were talking about the Colts and how they find themselves in this difficult spot with their quarterback situation. And it all of course, traces back to Andrew Luck's abrupt retirement. Since then, I mean, they had to trade for Jacoby Brissett. They signed Phillip Rivers. Now they're trading for Carson Wentz. They're trying to find the answer because they're in win-now mode, but it's not easy to be winning now when you don't have your quarterback. And I localized this for the Cardinals because I think I had a little bit of an aha moment last night, BT. Okay. I think they had, it's obviously different, and that one was tragic and the other was an abrupt retirement, but Oscar Tavares was kind of one of those moments for the Cardinals. I went back and looked at the 2014 prospect rankings, and he was the third-ranked prospect in baseball at that point in time, and he was projected to be that big bat that we've now been talking about for the last five years. Do, do you think there's something to that comp of, you know, the Colts trying to find the most important position in the sport because of the abrupt retirement for Andrew Luck? And then obviously the unfortunate tragic passing of Tavares putting the Cardinals in a, in a difficult spot of trying to find that next middle of the order bat. Well, I, I think I get where you're trying to go with this. I, I find a hard time drawing a parallel between sure, the course. two, but, but I do understand what you're talking about it, of building something without a, an important block. I mean, you're building a, a building without a foundation like that. That is a difficult thing. And it's a lot easier to explain, certainly in football, because you can have a ready-made team, but if you don't have that position, right, especially especially nowadays, you aren't going to have it figured out. And I think the Colts have done a really good job of kind of building a team around it, but they don't have that guy since he ended up retiring. And to the Cardinals' point, I mean, look, a lot of things have shaken out over the last few years since Oscar Tavares passed away. There were a lot of moves that were made, a lot of players that were signed, a lot of money that was spent that likely wouldn't have been spent if, in fact, he was the guy. Or maybe it would have been spent, uh, I'll rephrase that, respent differently to add to other pieces to make this team the dominant force that it could be. Now, we all know, uh, and I did hear uh, you the the part when you were breaking down all the prospects that were around Oscar mm-hmm. Tavares and how he was the third in baseball. Those are some incredible names that were behind him on those prospects lists. So if he lived up to what you know he was, uh, he, he everybody slated him to be. Yeah, this team is is totally different. So I, I kind of see where you're going with that. It's hard to build something when you're missing a big block. BT, what do you think that uh, that was like for John Mozalak to kind of navigate through? Because it just feels like, you know, you were trying to to fix a puzzle, uh, you know, without having those edge pieces of Oscar Tavares. And, you know, the, the butterfly effect, the kind of ripple effect on, on where they went with offseason moves and trades, it would have been completely altered and money could have gone elsewhere if it wasn't for that untimely passing. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think that there's a lot that goes into it. One, just from a human element, I mean, there's – 
these players, I know we talk about them a lot of times, like they are just pieces that you move around, but they're not. I mean, they, these guys are, are family. And so you, you lose a piece of your family, but then you realize that you have to make a move right after that. And I don't want to say that there's a, a panic that sets in, but there's a sense of urgency that's going to lead you to do things that otherwise you probably wouldn't do. And I think that we saw the organization do a little bit of that and a little bit of scrambling, you know, in, in the meantime. And look, that does and say, uh, I say that, but I also believe that everybody hopes that you have the next Oscar Tavares on the way, right? That next mm-hmm. prospect that is going to be there. But it's just not that easy. Like, these players don't come by that often. Yeah, I mean, it was it was amazing that they had it at the time. And I, I just, obviously, and I, I want to clarify here, like, the, the, this was all from a purely baseball perspective because the, it's, there is no comparison, as you said, BT, between a guy who retired abruptly uh, in the middle of his prime, who's going to go on to have with Andrew Luck, a very happy and healthy life, hopefully. And obviously the, the tragic passing of, of one of your young, young stars that there is no comparing that from a human perspective, but just on, on the pure, what do we have on our baseball team versus football team? That perspective is it's, it's tough. It's tough for these guys to be able to manage around that. BT, what's coming up today on the fast lane, my man? Man, we're going to break down a little bit of everything. The Blues owner last night. We're going to get a chance at 3 o'clock today to uh, talk to the guy that, that set that bad boy up. Tory Cruz is going to join us at 3, so all uh, all kinds of good stuff today on the fast lane. Looking forward to that. That's coming up from 2 to 6. We'll be back on Monday at 11 o'clock right here on 101 ESPN. But uh, I'll tell you, I really like baseball a whole lot. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast, powered by I Promise.